Hi everybody, it's Stefan Molyneux from Free Domain Radio. Hope you're doing well. Uh, today is the 26th of August 2015. Uh, there has been a terrible shooting, as of course they all are, uh, to media people. I think a cameraman and a reporter gunned down by a disgruntled former employee, I think is the way the story is going, who faxed a 23-page manifesto uh, detailing his um, objections to his perceived racial treatment at the hands of um, those around him. So we'll be doing more uh, on that. We are researching and following that as we go along. I just wanted to acknowledge that before we go into the show tonight. Um, uh, Many years ago, I was um, playing Macbeth and we were doing rehearsals and the word came that that um, weapons of mass destruction had been launched at Israel. Uh, This actually turned out to be false, but um, the director said money. He said that, um, he gave us a great speech, and he said that, uh, you know, we're trying to do our good in the world, and we cannot let the evil events of circumstances and history overtake the good that we're trying to do, and all of that. He actually gave a really great speech. I found it quite moving. Unfortunately, he shot it down later when I mentioned what a great speech it had been and how inspiring. He said, oh, I didn't believe any of it. I just had to get everyone back into rehearsal. And I was like, oh, why? Why did I lift the lid (laughs) to see what was going on? That's a real shame. Uh, And I, uh, he didn't listen to Nietzsche's dictum that you never leave your actions in the lurch. Don't betray them. And so we will continue to do the good that we can do in this show. Uh, And that has to do with talking with you, the fine listeners, if you want to support the show. And I hope that you do, because I don't think we can do any better than... (laughs) we're doing so uh, if you want to support the show freedomainradio.com slash donate to uh, help us out and uh, fdrurl.com slash donate if you find that easier to remember uh, but uh, we really do need your help and support you know we're cooking four or five million views and downloads a month a hundred thousand books i mean we really are bringing a tsunami of reason and evidence to a benighted planet and we can't do it without you. So please help us out at freedomainradio.com slash donate. Mike. All right. Well, up first today is Mr. Steve. And Steve wrote in and said, I'm a 22-year-old college graduate who is fascinated by your views regarding the college debt crisis and the effects of government subsidies on the cost of college and the type of people attending it. Recently, a Greek life sorority published a recruitment video which was later taken down after being exposed to heavy criticism regarding the lack of diversity that it portrays. I watched it, and it's the whitest video you've ever seen in your life. (laughs) Um, He continues and said, I would like to know what your opinion is on the effects of selective societies, such as fraternities and sororities, which don't adhere to any racial or income-based quotas. That's from Steve. Are you there, Steve? There you go. Yep. I hope you don't mind, Steve, if I use your name the way that the monkey does in Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. Steve. 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 All right. Um, So you're asking a voluntarist how he feels about voluntary association. I I find this interesting. What what do you think I'm going to – how do you think I'm going to respond to that? Uh, it's something that's really great. You're going to go on to say that uh, uh, it has no negative effect. But uh, though I truly believe in the rhetoric that you present, though I might think that it might have to some extent some negative effect as a whole. So um, w- would you think that 
it would be uh, negative overall for us to consider selective society as the way to go or uh, a certain kind of quota might be beneficial on the long run. A quota. Uh, now, which area of the gene pool are you, ha- are you hailing from? Uh, and and uh, I would say that, uh, so, so for, for, for instance, I'm Armenian myself. Yeah, a, a quota does not include me because I'm technically European. Though uh, I would say a quota regulation is proven to have uh, some, some kind of a beneficial effect uh, to, to the extent that uh, we're, we're just creating, if we let students in colleges uh, in, in, in certain kind of a lazy fair society, we're going to see uh, a number of societies developing that are uh, associated with each other. So I would suppose then you would imagine or hope because, you know, I look at Def Jam Records and uh, Motown and so on. They don't have a lot of white artists. So the um, the rap uh, record producers, uh, the rap music groups, would have to have majority whites uh, in their stable. Uh, the NBA, of course, would have to have uh, a majority of, uh, of whites. Um, breakdancing competitions would have to have a majority of whites. So if you want to put quotas in, um, where would you stop, right? Would you, would you begin by, I think some of the biggest imbalances in terms of population is um, uh, in the MBA, right? Which is significantly black in a very white, heavy society. So would you start with them? Oh, well, I would stop in a lot of places, but uh, I think our current society does have a lot of uh, quotas and does have a representational democracy. But um, And I'm just wondering how uh, would an anarchist society go about uh, solving problems regarding uh, certain kind of people not having to bump shoulders with each other at all? And, and hang, on, would... hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Go ahead. First of all, why is it a problem? And secondly, why is it any of your business who people choose to associate with? Uh, because uh, there's a certain kind of a value for people to exchange ideas and not to uh, segregate themselves and uh, and like alienate themselves and, and uh, like different islands. So let's just consider. Let's go back to the college example. When we're going to uh, like the general college uh, uh, and student population, it is definitely selected among a quota. Uh, so this video was a representation of the University of Alabama. We saw this lazy fair uh, uh, different uh, society of different students being segregated into different uh, associ- uh, different societies. And among these societies, uh, students does not uh, do not uh, interact with each other at all. And this is this would actually hinder the process of uh, exchanging ideas and actually uh, debating what is the common good. And no, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, I, hang on. Okay, so first of all, again, if you're going to do quotas, then you would want to make sure that the um, the media has a lot more centrist and right wing people in because it's very much dominated by left wingers. Also, in academia you'd have to make sure you had a lot more conservatives put in because, of course, there are very few conservatives in academia. The vast majority of scientists, strangely enough, because they get their money from the government, tend to be hostile to the free market and pro-socialist. Uh, they're very much on the left. So there's lots of places. Before you even get to the students, mm-hmm. you'd have to start with the faculty and you'd have to start with the media. Uh, and also, I'm not sure that there are a lot of Republicans who are teaching school. Uh, And so you'd have to get a lot more Republicans into school. Also, I'm not sure that there's a lot of men. In fact, I'm quite sure there are virtually uh, very few men who are teaching uh, in primary school and and the younger grades. So rather than dealing with the students, what you'd want to do is start dealing with everyone who's in charge 
uh, of, of the students. So that would be a pretty huge task. So that's the first thing that I would point out. The second thing that I would point out is that when it comes to diversity and quota systems or what have you, there is an implicit collectivism in this. Because what you're saying, let's just take a standard example. Are you saying that white students should be more exposed to what? Black thinking? Are you saying that there's a kind of thinking that is specific to blacks that white students can't have exposure to unless black students are around? Uh, I'm saying when all white students or most white students hang out together uh, for the majority of time, that will alienate them and make them apathetic to the causes of different uh, subcultures. Well, hang on, but why would you why would you be blaming whites for that? Because wouldn't you say that the black students also would hang around? I mean, do you do you lecture a lot of the black people for not being more inclusive of whites? Uh, no, I'm not. I'm not blaming either side. I'm blaming this. I'm not blaming. No, no, all. no. Hang on. All you've talked about is white people so far. Yeah, but I'm not blaming that. I'm blaming the lazy. There's just like this level of uh, uh, organization is a result of the lazy fair uh, type of. Uh, uh, society that they were brought in. So they just... They're... I'm sorry, I don't know. I have no idea what you... What do you mean by laissez-faire kind of society? Are you saying that Are you saying that most white people are very much pro-free market and minarchists or anarchists? Uh, no, I'm, I'm saying not, not that... Not from my experience, but go on. <laughs> All right. So I'm, I'm saying that among the students, they are left for their own devices. They are left to uh, like associate with, with whichever society they want to uh, uh, go, uh, go about or join. So among the different students, there are different organizations that you can join, and the school policy let them join whatever they want and let them construct this exclusive uh, selective society, such as Greek life, meaning sororities and fraternities, uh, which, and, and that's what I mean by laissez-faire. So laissez-faire is that uh, uh, the school allows such societies to be selective and no intervention whatsoever is placed. Okay, so 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 people, are, let's say that there are whites who want to hang out, hang out with whites and there are blacks who want to hang out with blacks. And I'm sure that there's a Japanese student association without a huge number of Scots, Scotsmen trying to get in. So people are, pref- let's say that they prefer their own culture, whether that's race or not. Um, and you're saying that it would be better for them if they had a lot of commingling with other cultures and other races. Is that right? I'm not talking about culture. I'm talking about uh, people having the uh, option to uh, join whatever they want. And, uh, okay, like, and regulation you're not with... answering my questions. You're not answering my questions. Okay, just just grab your politi- politically correct stuff into a giant ball and throw it out the window for now, right? So right. you said that there are big advantages to mingling with other races or other cultures. Is that right? I never said anything about advantages. Uh, I said something. Yes, you about... did. No, yes, you did. Mike, did you did you hear that? That there there are proven advantages. I thought he said about. Not sure of the exact wording, but certainly the impression I got. You can listen to it to be so, sure. Right, okay, so... that's fine. So, sorry, are you saying that there? Hang on. Are you saying then that there aren't any particular advantages to this kind of multiculturalism? Uh, I'm saying it is definitely beneficial for. Uh... Okay, so there are advantages. Why are we dancing around like this? I say, are there advantages? And you say, I never said that. And then I said, is it beneficial? And you say, yes. Well, if you're going to use the word benefits and say it has nothing to do with advantages, we may not be speaking the same language. Well, well advantages like uh, in terms of like advantages for the people as a whole, not advantages for a subculture to join another subculture, but rather advantages for the society as a whole. So, so Hang so, on, hang on, hang on. Hang you know on, what I mean? Hang on. Okay, so... So pretend that I'm the president of that, I think it was a white sorority, right? right? So come to me 
and make the case why I would absolutely find it in my benefit to pursue minorities or, or other cultures or whatever. I assume that there's nothing illegal. Like they're not saying, well, you can't join, right? Maybe people just don't want to join. So what's the benefit to say, I want to go out and get a bunch of, say, Pakistani people into Pakistani women into my sorority? What would be the advantage? Well, uh, it wouldn't be an advantage to yourself as the president. It would be advantage, an advantage for the collective whole. For humans. I don't know. Like, you know I'm a voluntarist and an anarchist. What on earth are you talking about? The collective whole. You might as well say it benefits the asphats of, of leprechauns, right? I mean, there's no such thing as a collective whole. And even if there is such a thing, how would it possibly accrue to these, be these benefits? All right. Uh, so uh, would you like to uh, like explain to me how would it be uh, beneficial to actually uh, allow this kind of segregation to take place and have a word? have a world eventually that is com uh, composed of different societies that is uh, 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 really extremely separate than each other and no type of... Uh, okay, well, hang on, hang on. Are you, say are you saying that in the absence of compulsion, people tend to self-segregate by culture and by race? Is that right? Uh, well, I I'm not sure. Uh, it, it, was, it was never uh, uh, tried before. Okay, stop, stop, stop. Okay, uh, look, if we're going to have a conversation, you have to be able to answer my questions. Mm-hmm. You have this, like, I ask a question. I'm not trying to trap you. I'm just really trying to understand what you're saying, and you go off on these tangents. Okay, let's start again. So it, you're sort of saying, well, if people don't have quotas or whatever, then they'll self-segregate. They'll sort themselves into their own cultures or genders or races or whatever, right? So is it your contention that in the absence of quotas or prodding or poking or guilting or laws or whatever, All right. that people will tend to self-segregate according to their own race and culture? All right. Uh, my answer would be, I don't know. I haven't tried to have a free society. Then, I have no, then you're wasting my time because you're saying, how is this problem going to be solved? And I'm saying, okay, let's define the problem. And you're saying, well, I don't even know if there is a problem. All right. So because if my people, answer was not... Aren't going to, sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. So my, my question was not, how is this problem going to be solved? It's just my, my question would be, is this beneficial or not? And how would it take place in, a, in an anarchist society? So... Uh, for me, I am unable. No, unable. Oh my God, dude! You said it is beneficial. You so, said it's beneficial my, my, to some collective good. In my perspective, what do you think about it, and how would you how would you like picture it in an anarchist society? I'd so, say. I'd, why Why would I think about it? Why would I think about it? Let's say that there's some black guys chess club. Mm -hmm. Why do I care? So they want to have a chess club with only black guys in it. What, why would I think about it? Right. What, what would it matter to me? Right. As a follow-up, what if the whole world was, compo was composed of different black guys or subcultural chess clubs that are completely unentangled and separate from each other? How, how would you say it would be like, beneficial for... The, would, you, would you think it, it would be a good thing or not? I'm sorry, if, if what is a good thing? If the whole world is comprised of different uh, subcultural exclusive groups that are separate than each other and refuse to have any kind of a debate or uh, any kind of a, an exchange of ideas. So what if this uh, exclusive club that you suggested and you said that you don't care about is it, its existence, what if this kind of club were the whole humanity and each subcultural group would be uh, separated and segregated from every other person? Okay, let's say that that is a potential scenario. Mm -hmm. Let's say every subculture ends up dealing mostly with its own members or exclusively with its own members. Chinese people stay in Chinatown and you know, black people stay in the black part of town and Scottish people only go to those weird dances where you try not to cut your feet and stuff. 
Let's say that happens. All right. Right. Let's say that happens. So what? Uh, in my perspective, I think that would be a negative thing. Why, why would you think it, it is a something that I shouldn't care about and something that I, well, I look, should have? Because look, hang on. If, if that's what people want, then you can tell them that it's negative for them. Mm-hmm. Now, most people are pretty good at figuring out their own self-interest, right? And so if something is negative for people, generally they tend to figure it out and change their behavior, right? So if I start up a, a rap label, right? Mm-hmm. Big chatty foreheads, house of booty shaking, throw your hands in the air like you just don't care. I love it. House of rap, right? And I say, I only want elderly Armenian women. That's, that's actually to good do idea. my rap albums, right? Mm-hmm. How well am I going to do? Oh, pretty well. Really? Uh, do, do a lot so. of market out there for elderly Armenian women rap. Well, you're not. That, that's a hypothetical question. You, no, no. You, you answer wanna, me you the wanna... question. Stop. I just let's have a conversation, like like we're actually talking and listening to each other. I'll, okay. I'll I, I, am I going to do well if I have elderly Armenian lady rap albums? If there's a market for it, I don't think there is a market for it, but you, you I, I agree. Going to do well. I, I don't think I have to be a music expert to, to know that that's the case. Okay, so let's say I'm a racist, I start up a, a rap label, and I don't want any blacks because boy, I'm just such a racist. Am I going to do well or poorly? Oh, uh, very poorly, right? A, because a lot of the most talented artists uh, are black, and B, because if I'm known to be a racist, not a lot of blacks are going to buy my elderly Armenian <laughs> female rap. <laughs> All right. So, whatever, right? So, so here's an example where racism goes against my self-interest, right? Let's say it's the 60s, and uh, I want to sign a whole bunch of, of artists, and of course, there's you know unbelievably great acts uh, coming out of the black community. I mean, we're talking, you know, Sam Cooke, Aretha Franklin, a little bit of a tottering Ella Fitzgerald. Uh, I mean, uh, Marvin Gaye. Uh, we've got um, uh, Smokey Robinson. I mean, just you name it. That's just like a staggering number of incredibly talented black singers and and songwriters and musicians. And uh, I say, I'm not going <laughs> to sign any black people because I just like committing uh, economic seppuku based upon my prejudices, I'm not going to do very well. So in those situations, um, for people to self-segregate would be really, really bad. Or, you know, I saw this, uh, there's a, a version of uh, Higher Ground and Roxanne that were done by two guys who are friends, Sting and Stevie Wonder, <laughs> a wasp named Sting. Anyway, um, and they love playing music together. Um, Steve, uh, Stevie Wonder did harmonica for... Um, one of uh, uh, Sting's songs, and they just have very similar voices, very similar styles, and they can both funk fairly hard, although I would say Stevie Wonder a little bit harder than um, uh, Mr. Uh, Ferretface. But uh, so they, they love playing music together, and so they really enjoy it. So you don't have to have quotas. You don't have to say to Sting, you've done a lot of records with white people, so you've got to go find a brother to do some music with. I mean, or if you go and see uh, Stevie Wonder, one of the great songs uh, on the, in, in the uh, <laughs> modern pantheon is A Superstition by Stevie Wonder. And if you go and see him rock that mofo out on Sesame Street, I mean, there's a couple of white guys in the back who are just funkin' harder than Wagnalls. And um, th- nobody needs Stevie. Got too many brothers in the band, you know. Got to get some some of the melanin challenged people back there because you know um, it's not working. 
And so these are people who get together and make great music and, and work well together and have a blast doing stuff together. And nobody needs to have quotas and nobody needs to convince them because it's in their self-interest. They enjoy it. They like each other's personalities. They like the way each other plays. You got Clarence Clemens doing deep soul kisses with Bruce Springsteen on tour and because they love making music together. And so people are going to collaborate when they find it profitable and enjoyable. I don't mean profitable in money, although that's part of it, but people are going to collaborate when they enjoy doing stuff together. But um, if they don't enjoy doing stuff together, mm-hmm. then they probably won't. But why, why would you need quotas? I don't really uh, understand why. People are going to get together if it's a value to them. But if it's not, why would you want to make them do it? Well, for, well first of all, uh, to a large extent, a value of having people uh, you know, share stuff together. But uh, in an event where there is no uh, a unifying body... Uh, to to actually facilitate these uh, these uh, ideas to be transferred, we we, we might okay. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, because I just gave you a bunch of examples which were all to do with musicians, and I didn't make that case accidentally. Do you think that there was a governing body that made Sting and Stevie Wonder make records together? A governing body, I would say there's a governing body that allowed for uh, multimedia to actually be uh, transmitted. What would you, no, no, you, no, come on, you... come on, man. No, 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 come on, come on. Was there, like, when, when, when Sting wanted, who he calls one of the best singers in the world, Chep Mani, mm-hmm. to, to sing on one of his uh, songs, Desert Rose, what, was there a governing body that facilitated that transaction? Uh, oh, not, not at all. I mean, if you... Okay, so, so you don't need a governing body telling musicians to work together. If they really enjoy working together, they'll do it. They don't care about the race. They care about the fun and the quality of what they can produce together. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you don't need a governing body for people to enjoy working together across races, across cultures, and so on. And, and, that, and that is correct. We, we definitely uh, uh, like reach that point. So what if they do not enjoy? What if they voluntarily said that we do not, uh, we do not want to associate with these other people? We're good on our own. Um, wouldn't you think that that would be a situation that would call for an intervention of any kind? Why? Uh, because uh, uh, we, because uh, there, there, there would be uh, points in... Oh, no, the lifetime of humanity where uh, humans or at least large amount of large uh, bodies of, uh, uh, of the population needs to agree on certain values to move forward. And if we, if we saw this whole like, idea of people uh, being separated, wouldn't you say that would be um, kind of a, a loss uh, of communication among ourselves and would prevent us from moving forward because we're seeing people, uh, uh, do you get what I mean? Uh, I'm saying that uh, a, an interventionist body is actually needed to form a unifying ground for uh, people to actually uh, uh, perform and, do, uh, and make progress. Okay, well, let's say that you had a governing body called the government, let's say. And the government for, let's say, at a minimum, 50 or 60 years worked really hard to, to get two groups to agree on something and, and to work together and to join together in common values and uh, in a common vision of society and to put aside their differences and to work together uh, as one. Some people would call that something like Head Start and the Civil Rights Act of the 1964 
uh, I think it was, and, uh, you know, welfare payments and uh, other forms of uh, wealth transfers from whites to blacks. And uh, let's say after 50 or 60 years of this government program, which is supposed to have everyone end up with common values, you still have extremely wide statistical divergences in things like crime rates, in things like single motherhood, in things like voting patterns, in things like income, in things like assets, in things like educational attainment then wouldn't you say that we've had this giant government program or America's had this giant government program attempting to find reconciliation between blacks and whites for the past 50 or 60 years? Now, I think that that's made things far worse. It's a government program. Of course it's going to make things worse. There's no government program that makes things anything any better except for agitators, bureaucrats, and lenders. And so maybe you could go out to people and say, you're not actually acting in your own self-interest. You know, if, if you, you want, let's say you want an all-white sorority or an all-black sorority, you're not acting in your own self-interest. And you could go out and you could make that case. And you could say, look, it's really great to have a diversity of opinion to have, although I really dislike that as a whole. The idea that you've got to embrace diversity by going to speak to Chinese people is like saying, well, you see, you have one way of thinking and Chinese people have another way of thinking and they kind of all this one giant blob called Chinese people and you're this one giant blob called white people and you're this one giant blob called black people and you're this one giant blob called Asians or whatever. And so you got to mix it up because you all think differently. Well, if that's true, I'm not saying that it is, but if it is true that all the races or all the cultures fundamentally think differently, well, first of all, that can't be true unless everyone's irrational, because there's no such thing as different thinking. There's good and bad thinking, but let's just throw that aside for the second. But if, if all of the, let's say the races, if all the races sort of fundamentally think differently or are different, well, then we have a huge problem. And the problem is, okay, well, what is the benefit of going into a very foreign mode of thought? Like, I... I sort of I really valued a lot more diversity when I was younger, and I was involved in diverse uh, reach outs and diverse programs and so on. And when I get as I get older, I just have less time to learn other cultures, right? So, like if I went to Japan and I tried to integrate into Japan, it would take a huge amount of work because you know people who grow up in Japan, well, they speak Japanese, they know all of the Japanese culture, they know how you greet people and what you say and what's acceptable topics and what's not acceptable topics and all that. And it's kind of exhausting. You know, if you're going to go travel and bike through Japan, like a friend of mine did that when he was younger, he goes, bikes through Japan, had a fun time, right? And met people and chatted and so on. But if you're going to go and live there and you're going to go and work there and you're going to raise children in Japan, well, it's, uh, it's a lot of work to try and figure out how you're supposed to do things and what you're supposed to say. Uh, I mean, I found it tough going from a poor family background in um, in Canada to a rich or relatively well-off business environment when I became an entrepreneur. You know, how do you mingle at cocktail parties with people who are worth millions of dollars when you grow up in a single-parent, dirtbag, poor, poverty-laden household? Well, that took a lot of learning and a lot of self-consciousness and so on. And that's adapting just to a different economic layer within my own damn society. Going to another society, it's a fun to visit, but it's incredibly time-consuming to really be able to fluidly work in another culture so that you're not offending people by accident, so that you're not withdrawing from them uh, like what may be tacked 
in one society is considered rudeness in another society. What might be rude in one society is considered tactful in another society. How do you date? How do you pick up? How do you, when do you meet the parents? When do you, who pays for what? Like it's all really complicated. There's a huge number, thousands and thousands and thousands of rules that you have imbibed in your own culture just by growing up in it. And you probably don't even know half of them except instinctually. Like you say this, you don't say that. Now I've of course lived you know, little bits in Ireland, lot in England, little bits in South Africa, a lot in, in Canada. And I've traveled lots and lots of different places. And I really, I'm not saying you haven't, but, but having been to these different places, you know, uh, government run crappy schools, uh, <laughs> crappy run private schools that cost a fortune and all that. And three different universities uh, in, in Canada, York and uh, University of Toronto and McGill University, plus theater school. Like I've gone to a lot of different uh, environments. And I recognize that the number of embedded instinctual rules of behavior, of governance of behavior within each society, within, within each economic level and layer within those societies. Uh, and this is not to mention, I mean, how long would it take for you to go to a synagogue and know what to do <laughs> and know how to chat with people and know what jokes were funny and what jokes were offensive? Uh, and and so on, or know which jokes you should laugh at and which jokes you shouldn't laugh at. All of these instincts that you have built up like sedimentary layers of history that are informing just about everything that you do. When you move from one culture to another culture or from one race sometimes to another race, depending on where those races uh, originated, man, you're like suddenly you're you cross the street and you have to become this razor-sharp-witted archaeologist who's figuring out everything that's going on. And so there is a huge time investment that is necessary to fluidly be able to go from culture to culture, particularly when those cultures have some opposing values. And certainly among blacks and whites, in general, as a whole, there are some uh, opposing values. And so why, you know, I, I know what the cost is. Like, I know how difficult it is to go and navigate between different cultures. Like, let me give you a tiny example. So <laughs> this is insane. I come to Canada, right? So when I first came to Canada, we lived with a brother of my mother's in Whitby. And I was put in grade eight because I was fairly advanced. And they tested my writing and my reading, which has always been off the charts because I've been, um, I started writing short stories when I was uh, five or six years old and was reading from as long as I can remember. And so uh, I was in uh, a, a class uh, in grade eight. And when I came to Toronto, when we finally sort of settled down in Toronto, I was moved back two grades into grade six. And my first day, I went to uh, the school and I sat down and, you know, we go through the lessons and all that. And it's all pretty basic, especially the reading stuff. Anyway, so then the bell rings at 1030 and out we go for recess. And I'm like, oh, I wonder... <laughs> I wonder what we're going to play. Well, let me tell you, man. All right. <laughs> the game that we played was called Chase the Girls and Punch Them in the Groin. <laughs> All right. Now, wow. I grew up in a somewhat, somewhat dicey neighborhood in England. Let me tell you a game I had never thought of as remotely playable is Chase Anyone and Punch Them in the Groin. <laughs> And so I was like, I was like, and first of all, I thought I was being punked, right? I thought like you, <laughs> prepubescent Aston Kutcher, they're trying to get me to go and chase the girls and punch them in the groin. 
so that I'm like, oh, here I go. I'm from England. I'm going to go and whack you in the pee-pee. You know, and then everybody was like, I thought it was just being punked. Until they went and actually chased the girls and punched them in the groin. Now, I found that appalling enough. Because I thought, well, you know, it's the old thing, right? Well, if I was a girl, I wouldn't like to be punched in the groin. Except, except these girls did. <laughs> this is the insane thing. Oh, my God, out here in the rough colonies, I believe this. Pee-pee <laughs> punching and people like it. What the heck is going on? And and so they went and they, 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 they punched these girls in the groin and these girls were laughing. I have this incredibly vivid memory of the girl in the alcove where the doors open into the school and she's on the ground and this guy's trying to punch her in the groin and she's laughing her head off. And I'm like, what layer of Lord of the Flies hell have I had popped out in? <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure how I'm going to be unpopular, but I sure know how I'm not going to be popular. I'm not going to be popular by punching girls in the groin. And I never did punch girls in the groin. I I quickly found another kid who seemed equally horrified, and we went and talked about things that mattered, <laughs> as we tended to do, and we walked around uh, every uh, recess. And, and just very briefly, another story was um, in England, you play a game called rounders, and when you, it's like baseball, when you hit the ball in rounders, you can you get three pitches, you can choose whether you run or not, because if you, if you don't hit it that well, you can say, next, or something like that, and you'll you'll get pitched again, right? Now, I'm I'm, I was, I'm pretty good at sports, and I was very sporty back then, and I was pretty good at rounders. Always been a good hitter. I'm a southpaw, right? So I hit the ball, and uh, first of all, it was one of these weird softball things. So it's like when you're used to hitting peas, suddenly you're hitting like a grapefruit uh, or almost a watermelon, it seems. So it was pretty easy to hit. And I cracked it pretty hard, but I thought, yeah, you know what? I could do better than that, <laughs> not by pretending it's a girl's groin. And so uh, I hit the ball pretty hard, and it goes over left field. And uh, I just, you know, I, I just lean on my bat. And I say, next. <laughs> and, uh, of course, all of the uh, British, all of the Canadian kids are like, run, you limey bastard, run. <laughs> I'm like, no, no, I'll just take the next one. <laughs> like, drop your monocle, you limey bastard, and run. So, of course, I threw my, but just something as simple as that. You know, how long did that story tag me? <laughs> In, in school, you know, like, oh, I'll, I'll just take the next one <laughs> became like the uh, the thing when the people would go up and play play baseball. And um, and that's, you know, these fairly minor things. But uh, that's just coming from England to Canada in a fairly similar kind of uh, economic uh, sphere. And, you know, it took a while to to adjust. And um, I knew everything I needed to do in England. And I just, you know, coming to Canada, it's like, okay, well, what the hell do I do? You know, not to mention, uh, well, I wouldn't give my story if I've said the story before of jumping onto the ice rink with my <laughs> skate guard still attached. Well, at least they weren't on my hands. <laughs> That's wonderful. And, uh, you know, thinking I was dressed up quite formally because skating in England is always a pretty formal affair. And uh, all these little hockey kids are like, hey, silver pants, you know, knocking me over in the ice and stuff. Uh, but at least they weren't punching me in the groin, although my hair was kind of long. I think that uh, was the connection. But uh, so here, like, that's just a tiny example of an adjustment that's made in a fairly similar kind of culture. So, you know, as you get older, it's like, yeah, you know, I could go and learn all this stuff. Give me the cost benefit, right? I mean, I know what it's going to cost me. I know how much time it's going to take. And I don't know if it's ever going to succeed, whether people are just going to be polite, particularly if you're trying to deal with a really polite culture. 
like uh, Japanese cultures, if you go wrong, people may not even tell you. You know, there's some cultures, if you go into their house and you admire something, they have to give it to you. <laughs> nice painting. Here it is. And it's like, no, I just, I was trying to explain this to my daughter the other day. And she's like, well, no, I'd give it back. It's like, but that's an insult. So good luck with all that. Like how much you have to monitor yourself. It's more difficult to learn another culture than it is to learn another language. Now, if you're saying to me, well, Steph, if you spend the 10,000 hours to learn Japanese, you will have access to all of these great books that are written in Japanese. It's like, I will. And I'm sure the translations don't quite do them justice, but still that's 10,000 hours. And so I, I, I have a certain amount of hesitation when it comes to unreservedly recommending that everyone mix with every other culture or whether that's race or culture or, or ethnicity or, or religion or whatever. It's a lot of work. There's a lot of minefields. And if someone can tell me like the, why it's worth it all the time, I'm, I'm happy to hear. But um, people always talk about these untested benefits, right? Like people have gone out repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly trying to find out What's so great about multiculturalism? What's so great about having people with different and often opposing beliefs all trying to live together in the same society? What's so great about it? Well, food, music. Yes, I agree. Food and music, fantastic. But outside of food and music, what are the benefits? And people have studied this extensively. And they, every single time that I've read about, they find the same thing. It sucks. It's bad for society as a whole. Trust goes down, cohesion goes down, neighborliness goes down. And this is really bad all around. And um, so it is, and I think that's just because there's this great Grand Canyon of understanding because we all grew up in different cultures. My solution to this, of course, is to replace culture with philosophy. But that's taking a little bit of time. In fact, it's going faster than I thought it was. Once we replace culture with philosophy, then a lot of these problems will be solved. There will still be regional preferences around, around humor, around how you uh, pick up someone or express that you're interested. You know, like the way they do it in Australia, brace yourself, um, is a little bit different than the way they would do it in Japan, which involves, I think, uh, I don't know, tipping a piece of sake on your shoe. I don't know what, what they do. But, but there will be lots of local and regional differences around non-moral aspects of society, you know, like you drive on the left or the right or whatever. But right now, not only are these cultural differences in terms of, you know, social habits, mating habits, humor habits, and so on, but there are big moral ones as well. And so if someone can explain to me and also find the data, you know, like whenever you're told something is universally good in society, that's usually a great place to, to bring your giant wrecking ball of Miley Cyrus-laced skepticism to the entire structure. So whenever you hear diversity is our strength, multiculturalism is our strength, say, okay, well, let's hear the data, right? I, mean, I don't want to just, you know, it's like the, the guy, John, who called in the other week, who's like, Steph, you're just wrong. It's like, man, don't tell me I'm wrong. Show me how I'm wrong. Multiculturalism is a strength. Our diversity is our strength. It's like, okay, show me the data. We're having lots of disparate... Uh, cultures and and groups and and uh, religions and ethnicity show me the data where this is great because everywhere i look around the world it looks terrible it looks it looks like a complete disaster so uh, you know if you want to go off and do this and let us know i think that'd be fantastic now where you have rational values 
people can work together really well. Like Stoyan and I work together really well. We obviously we put up with Mike, but Stoyan and I, we really are the team that makes. I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's actually me and Mike. Stoyan, well, he's he's asleep now, right? Yeah, okay. Throwing Stoyan under the bus for this one, but but you know we've got a guy from Bulgaria, uh, we've got a guy from you know war torn New York, and <laughs> we have me. And I think we work together really well. Our conflicts are relatively few, and where they are, they're very productive because we share the same values. Um, so those who are willing to replace culture with philosophy can work together. Or, or, uh, can you to can you please like elaborate on that just like briefly, if you may? Like how we gang up on Mike? Uh, no. <laughs> No, how how can we replace culture with philosophy? Like, how would that take place? Well, I mean, that's I've got three thousand shows. I don't know how to boil <laughs> right, it down right, pretty quickly. Right. But no, it's it's everything that you're handed to you put through the Socratic reasoning, right? Diversity is a strength. Okay, let's see the data. Now, I understand if you're building a house, you want a guy who knows how to do the roofing, you want a guy who knows how to do the basement and the plumbing and the electrical and, and hanging the, 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 um, the drywall and, you know, doing the window. They're all going to have different skills. Nobody's talking about that. Of course, diversity, the division of labor is a strength, but they can all be from the same cultural group or they can be the same or racist or whatever. But if you're building a house, I can't for the life of me understand how it would be really great to have, you know, two guys who speak Polish and one guy who speaks Swahili and one guy who only speaks Spanish. Because of a quota. Like, yep. Yeah, like what the hell? Like that would be terrible. Right, <laughs> I mean, that right. would be the most inefficient thing conceivable. Gotcha. Or if, you, um, if you're running a school, wouldn't it be helpful if the students spoke the same fucking language? <laughs> I mean, I don't even know how to put that so obviously, right? And so if you have, like, there are schools in America where there are 20 or more languages spoken natively by the student population. That's called impossible to teach in because the amount of resources that are so. So the people who, who, who speak French, they should go to their French school. That, does that mean they shouldn't learn English? No, they can learn English if they want. But if you say, well, everyone from every different language part should all be put into the same school, you're basically saying no one should get educated and everyone should fight. I mean, if you look at what happens when um, Hispanics move into a black neighborhood, oh my God, <laughs> that's not always the prettiest merging, right? This isn't exactly uh, hands across the water. It's more like, you know, shivs across the bars. And uh, so it is, um, you know, so, so replacing culture with philosophy is... Um, the things that you believe and you divide them into two. One is the moral and one is the aesthetic, aesthetically preferred actions, like being on time, being polite, and so on. The aesthetically preferable actions, this is from my free book, Universally Preferable Behavior, available at freedomainradio.com slash free. You divide your beliefs into two areas. One is the aesthetic stuff, and you don't give a shit about that because that's not urgent, that's not life-saving, that's not essential. That stuff can all be dealt with down the road. So you look at your two sets of beliefs. One is aesthetic. Well, there is a bunch of beliefs you have, like, you know, Queen is the, actually, Queen is the best band, is more metaphysical, so that's another uh, topic for another time. But um, you have um, your beliefs which are not related to philosophy. I like jazz. <laughs> I like a pie. And then you have beliefs that are preferable and are semi-universal, uh, which are your aesthetically preferable actions. And then you have your moral beliefs, right? The non-initiation of force. And you look at your beliefs and you say, what is the role of violence or force in these? Now, if it's self-defense, you can use it in reaction. So for you, the way that this I think is most helpful is you can say, I have a preference 
that people of different cultures and races and groups join together and are non-self-segregating or whatever. And then you have to ask yourself, is that I like jazz? Well, no, because you're saying there's a universal benefit. And liking jazz is not a universal benefit. Um, everyone being on time would be a universal benefit, but it's not something you can enforce through violence because lateness is not enforced on you through violence. Uh, and then there's the use of violence. So clearly you have a preference that is more than I like jazz, and it's less than thou shalt not kill. So it's somewhere in aesthetically preferable actions. Now, you can't initiate the use of force to get people together because that's called kidnapping, right? I really think that there should be more Pakistani people in the Indian sorority. So I'm going to put them in a sack and hang them from a flagpole in front, right? That's, you, you can't initiate the use of force to get people to merge together. Now, if you want, you can say to people, I'm going to give you the empirical benefits I'm going to give you the moral case. Well, you can't really give people the moral case because it's not immoral to self-segregate. Like if, if, I only, if I only want to hang around with bald people, it's not, self it's not an immoral thing, right? If, if you want to only hang around with Armenian people, you're not initiating the use of force against anyone. No, no. Yep. And so it's not, uh, it's not a moral thing you're talking about. It's aesthetically preferable. Now, aesthetically preferable is basically I'd like people to be more polite, and the way that you do that is through encouragement and also giving them better data and also through ostracism for those of you, for those who don't fulfill your belief systems, right? This is why uh, the ostracism is so powerful. All, all the people on the left who say we need a big government to enforce things, they all enforce things through ostracism by screaming racism uh, at anyone who talks about uh, anything real when it comes to the races. So you would put yourself in the category of I have aesthetically preferable things. I'd like it if people... So you got to bring data. you got to bring data. Like I make the moral case for not spanking, but I also point out that it makes your kids happier and it makes your relationships with them better and their IQs will likely go up and like all these. So I give these positive benefits and I bring the, uh, the, the researchers on and compile the data and put it all in graphs and make it as enjoyable and entertaining and engaging as humanly possible because I'm making a case. And what I don't do is run and say, well, we should throw parents in jail for spanking, right? Yeah, you could make a case that it's a violation of the initiation of force, but what's the point? Because most people think it's a good thing to do anyway. So you've got to go out and gather the data and say to people, here's why you should engage with different cultures. Here's all the benefits you, you can get uh, from engaging with different cultures. I think you're going to have a really tough time <laughs> finding that data. If you do find it, Please send it to us because I'd like to see it as well. But don't assume that just because people have repeatedly yelled at you that diversity is a strength, I mean, we need more Democrat voters, <laughs> then that it's necessarily true. Does, does that make any sense? For sure. And you can say to people, um, I don't associate with those who aren't multicultural. You can certainly do that. You say, I'm, I'm going to shun people who aren't multicultural. The problem is then is that you're saying it's good to shun people who have a different value set, in which case you're kind of reaffirming how bad multiculturalism is, right? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. does that help? Oh, yeah, for sure. Thank you very much. It's a really very an honor for me to speak to you. And great, great questions. I really appreciate you bringing that up because uh, I just love tiptoeing through landmines as if I'm blindfolded and have uh, <laughs> metal legs. You do it so okay. well. <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. Up next is Brendan. 
Brendan wrote in and said, My question is one that involves property rights and the ethics behind taxation. If a government is merely a collection of individuals who own a vast amount of property, aren't these individuals justified in imposing a tax on anyone who wishes to live on this supposed property? That's from Brendan. Hmm. All right. Brendan, are you ready? I am, yes. Okay. On the count of three, you and I will both scream at the top of our lungs, I own Mars. And whoever says it first gets Mars. Are you ready? One, two, three. I own Mars! <laughs> I win! Sure. You now owe me taxes sure. because you looked at Mars yesterday. Sure, sure. Wait, did I actually own Mars by screaming I own Mars? I don't believe so, no. I wouldn't make what if argument. I put it in a stirring hymn? Oh, say can you see by the red bloody light, <laughs> right? I mean, <laughs> what if I what if I get a nice flag with you know giant spotty foreheads? I mean, what if I do things that that just aren't anything to do with ownership, but but claim I have stuff? Sure, sure. Well, then I believe. So it how does this how does this government own stuff, friend? Yeah, sure. And I, I think that comes down to the question of how is property obtained and um can anyone just claim property and then anyone who happens to be born in that property can simply be taxed by the property owners which in this case would be the government well um have you done any studying on common law with regards to property acquisition i'm not trying to trap you i'm just curious where we're starting from i have not studied any common law in that respect no well, generally, the way that property is um, is owned is it's created, right? So if I go out to a lake and I spend time fishing and I pull that fish out of the lake, I have turned it from something that was not ownable, which is a fish at the bottom of the lake, and I've turned it into something that can be, you know, fried up uh, and uh, eaten or used as some uh, kind of sex toy or whatever. Uh, and uh, so you create property. If I go and build a house, uh, on land that's not being used by anyone, then obviously the house is created. It wasn't there before. If I fence in the land uh, and I clear it and I plant it, then you know I've created crops that weren't there before. So uh, property is that which is created. Now, there's lots of property that will never be created if the prerequisites to creating it are not there. In other words, no one's going to build a house if they can't guarantee that they, but by building the house, they'll own the land underneath it, right? Because if you build a house sure. and I come along and say, hey, man, that's my land. I've just, I spat on it, so it's mine. And I, you know, then yeah, bring sure. my cousins over and we beat you, beat you up and take your house. No one's ever going to build a house. Uh, in the same way, no one is going to plant crops if they can't be guaranteed that they can keep the proceeds of their crop planting, right? Which is why civilization is founded on property rights, because you can't have any of these things without that. So there's the prerequisite for property, which is I've now laid a claim. And in general, in common law, what happens is, um, and I know this, <laughs> it's so weird, everything was just like a training for this show, right? So when I was after high school, I got out of high school a bit early because I did some extra credits uh, in the summers. And I went and worked for a gold prospecting company uh, looking for uh, gold and, and uh, getting samples and all that. And the way you did it was you would go in a kilometer square and you would blaze a trail and you would nail your, um, they were like little tin things with your company and the date and all that. And they nailed to the tree. 
And then you would get it, I don't know, for a year or two afterwards that anything you found then would be yours. And if you didn't do anything with that land, it would revert back to an unowned status. And that's how mines get found. Right? You stake out a bunch of land. And then if you find gold underneath that, it's your land. And then you start building on it. And then it's yours forever, right? So the way things, you, you indicate a preference to use the land, which requires labor. Like you can't just mark it off. You know, like like Hiccup's little, like Churchill's little Hiccup when he's dividing India and Pakistan. You can't just draw a big circle throughout the Great Shield and make it yours. You actually have to go and invest land. That's how, invest labor in demarking the land as something you want to use. And then you actually have to use it. Otherwise, it reverts back to an unowned status. And a lot of what we did was, well, we think there might be gold here, but it's been two or three years. We have to go back and redo these these things. And that's how... You do it, and you do it in a kilometer square so that it is harder for you to just say, you know, uh, I take a helicopter he- here, and then I take a helicopter 500 kilometers over here, and then, right, then you just get too much land, and, and it's not reasonable. So you have to do it by foot. You have to blaze the trail. You have to put the, nail these things in, and a kilometer square is not something you can really do by helicopter, plus there's not a lot of places to land. So you find some way of making it difficult to do, but not impossible or not really expensive. And like you don't have to build a build a moving sidewalk <laughs> from, from one end to another. And um, so that that's the pre So then once you have that claim of I'm interested in this land, then you really put a lot of effort into trying to figure out if there's any gold there. And if there isn't, then you let it lapse back into its unowned status, right? And so I'm not saying that's perfect, but that's kind of the way that it's developed in in uh, a lot of places. Like I gave a speech, God, I can't believe it was only last year. I gave a speech last year in Amsterdam and on, on Bitcoin, which you should really watch. It's a great speech. And there was a sidewalk sale that was going on the next day. And I was walking around. And people had put these little chalk outlines and they'd written their name on things. Okay. <laughs> right? And <laughs> that was they, – they staked that claim. And you couldn't go and put your stall where someone else's claim had been. And because that's the way everyone accepted that it was done, everybody – it worked out perfectly. Nobody really, I didn't see, I saw them all setting up and so on. I walked around the whole town uh, for hours. I didn't see a single conflict because everyone had to go chalk out midnight. You got to go chalk out your outline. There's your name. And um, then that's where you're going to set up your stall. And there was no conflicts about it. And Jeff Tucker's got a great chapter on tailgate parties uh, and how stuff is marked out in uh, his book, It's a Jetson's World, which I actually read as an audiobook. You can find it on this channel if you want or download it as an MP3. So it's a good book. But um, so that's how property is. Um, it, 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 you, you create, I'm, I'm interested in using it. Then you either use it or you don't. If you use it, it becomes yours. If you don't use it, it reverts back to unowned and someone else can claim it. So that's generally how, um, uh, how it works. Sure. Well, how about we assume, say, a government uh, claims property and then uh, nope. performs labor no, on that property? No, no, and no, is able no. to... Hang on, hang on, hang on, okay. hang on, hang on. Okay. Sure. Um, so you're saying, let's assume that a unicorn is in the horse race and it has magical wings. It's <laughs> like, actually, we can't really assume sure. that. Right? Let's assume we can violate the laws of physics and build a bridge out of soap bubbles. Actually, we really can't assume that. So when sure, you say no. the government, what do you mean? You mean a group of people, right? 
Yeah, uh, yeah, a collection of individuals. Um, so oh, sorry, so a collection of individuals. Hang on, hang on. For okay. some, for for law to exist, it must be universally applicable. So why would this particular group of individuals be able to establish a claim of property that violates two fundamental rules of property? One is there's no investment in labor to mark the property as yours, right? They just, they, they stick a flag in the ground and, ah, the angels, the magic, it's mine. I claim this for Queen Victoria and her tiny panties, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so they don't have to go around claim staking, right? They don't have to do that laborious process of marking out their territory and building fences and registering and blah, 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 right? So they have a way of claiming property that cannot be universalized by its very nature. Because if, if someone has the ability to point at a giant landmass and say, that's mine, then everyone has that ability. Uh, and yeah. therefore, each, each of their claims contradict each other and nothing can be done. So the first way that government claim of ownership violates property rights is they don't have to invest any labor to demarcate unowned property as theirs. The second is the unowned part, right? Because when the government forces you to pay property tax, what they're saying is you and I own this property, right? Mm -hmm. If I go and clear sure. out the woods and I go build a log cabin Walden style, then I own the land that I've cleared and the house. Now, the government then claims that they also own that, which can't be universalized because if everyone could just assert rent-based property income based upon nothing, then everyone can do that, and the government can say, well, you owe me $5,000. And I'll say, okay, uh, I'm going to point at the parliament building, and now I'm going to say, I own that, and you owe me $5,000 to rent that. And then, you know, like, we don't get anywhere. If you can just arbitrarily point at something and say, well, now you owe me rent because X, right, because I made a nice flag. Well, so the government not only doesn't de have to demarcate its property or invest in its development, but also it can claim property rights on already existing property that's actually the de definition of theft if i go steal your car i'm using it as my property despite the fact that it's already owned that's how we know taxation is theft sure yeah yeah i, I agree um I'm, I'm gonna throw a hypothetical out here so um let's just assume wait, wait, I'm hang, some, on. Uh, hang on okay okay <laughs> i've got you know i've got my special duct tape here because i i knew this was going to be kind of hypothetical show i'm just gonna sure, sure. And put the duct tape of hypotheticals around my helmet, held, held, around my head, and I'm ready. <laughs> I'm assuming the crash right, position, right, yeah. Jamaican bobsled position. Go. All right, all right, all right. So let's assume I'm some astronaut or whatever, and I decide to fly to the moon. And once I get to the moon, I decide to perform some labor on wherever I land or whatever. I have some sort of military or police that's able to protect that land or whatever. Would I still be able to claim that is my property? And if anyone was born on that property, would I have the right to, say, charge them rent and, and claim that I'm some government and be able to collect taxation as a result? Okay, let's take these claims one at a time. Sure. Is it your rocket? Uh, let's just say yes. Sure. Okay, so it's your rocket from your money because if it's taxpayers, yeah, like then I, you don't, I, you I don't the rocket shit, or something, right? Sure. Then you're, then yeah, you're just yeah, like sure. – uh, uh, you're a, a stowaway, right? I yeah, stowed yeah, away sure. on this uh, this vessel. I guess it's mine. <laughs> okay, so you, <laughs> sure, you got sure. your own rocket, right? And yeah. and you you went to the moon. 
Sure. And you set up some sort of perimeter, right? Like you, you build a fence or something, let's just say a kilometer square. Okay. Well, then you own, you own that provisionally. You own that for whatever, two, two years or whatever. Let's just say two years. You own that for two years. But if you don't develop it, you don't own it anymore. So if you go and build something there, then it's yours, right? But if you don't, then it returns to an unowned status. Now, the question is, why the hell would anyone be having babies on your property? It's your property. Yeah, I know. It, 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 it's definitely a stretch. I'm just like no, no, assuming I'm, that, I'm say, fine with the civilization has started the theoretical. I'm yeah, fine yeah, sure. that a whole bunch of Mexicans took a wrong turn at Albuquerque and tried having anchor babies on the moon, which I'm sure would please Donald Trump to no end. But I'm, I'm <laughs> fine with that theoretical, you know, like, uh, wow, it's uh, yeah. the stars are beautiful in America. I'm so much lighter. Yeah. Whoa, <laughs> my diabetes yeah. must be getting better. I'm thinner. Right. So, uh, wow, sure. this, this fence is really high. I thought it was only a couple of hundred feet. It turns out it's a quarter of a million miles. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I'm just assuming. Like, so, so, so like, let's say someone now. comes and has, hang on, let's say someone comes and, and uh, they have a baby on, on your property, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. they're trespassing. Sure. Right? They're using your property sure, without well. your permission. You might not care. You might be like, yay, you know, human life, fantastic, right? I, I'm, Here, have citizenship. Sorry? I, I'm basically saying, like, I'm letting them live on my property, assuming that the property's mine because I performed labor on it or, or whatever, and I'm basically charging them rent to live on the property. If they don't pay me rent, then I'll just kick them off, say, go back to Earth or some other No, no, hang on, hang on. They're not, you know, you're not charging them to live on your property because if you haven't done anything to develop your property, it's not going to remain yours. So if you build a space hospital on the moon, right? Yeah. You build a space hospital on the on the moon where women finally don't have like swollen ankles because they weigh one sixth of what they do on the earth. So you build a space hospital on the moon and someone comes and they what? Like they have an emergency, their moon buddy buggy breaks down on the way to their other hospital, they have to come use your hospital when yeah. you charge them, right? Yeah. Or their insurance pays or whatever, right? So you charge them and they have then discharged their use of your property through paying their hospital bills, right? Sure. Sure. Yeah. So you don't get to charge them rent forever because they were born in your hospital, right? Well, let's, let's assume they decide to stay on my property or whatever. I'm letting them stay on my property by charging them, say, a monthly rent or something like that. I, I can declare myself a government and basically that rent. No, 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 no. Wait, 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 wait. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Okay, so you went from being a landlord to being the government. And that is uh, like going from an old police song to a Canadian nightclub. Oh, that is one of the most obscure references, a set of references I've ever made. But anyway, um, you can't go that far. Because if you are a landlord, it means that you built... Let's just change it from a hospital to a condo, a bunch of, no, a bunch of apartment buildings, right? An apartment building. So you have an apartment building on the moon and people want to live there. Okay, great. Then the reason they pay you rent is they don't have to build it themselves. And they also don't have to pay for 
the entire building themselves. It's because you're still responsible for maintenance and they're also paying you back only a small portion of the capital that it took for you to build it every month, right? So they're getting significant economic benefits. They don't have to save up for a down payment. They can move in right away and they can move out with three months notice anytime they want, which is not usually the case when you have a mortgage. So they're getting a certain amount of flexibility and they don't have to invest a lot of capital to move in and they don't have to worry about maintenance and and upgrades and things going wrong. And so they're paying you for your building. So that doesn't make you a government. That's like saying that everyone's a government who's in Uber because people get the use of their car in the back for a while, right? Yeah, well, couldn't I declare myself the leader of my property and and couldn't I define myself as the government over my specific property? Well, you could call yourself you could call yourself the unicorn of the Mona Lisa's forehead for all I care. But the question is, what is the reality of what's happening? Governments claim property rights over that which they did not build, which is also owned by other people, and they prevent people from leaving. Okay. So, in order to be so, a government, hang on. In order to be a government, someone else would have to build everything. You would have to charge a surcharge on everyone in that apartment building and you'd have to prevent them from ever leaving the apartment building. Sure. Okay. That's a lot more than a landlord, right? That's that's yeah, more yeah, than yeah. the market. I think, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I think our definitions of what is in a government were different from one another, which is where the confusion kind of came from. Well, I thought we went over that, that the government can't establish property rights without property investment and certainly can't do it on already owned property and therefore can't be a government. Okay. Um, I guess that makes sense. Um, I I also have another question about anarcho-capitalism. I don't know if we have time or not, but... um, I don't know either. Why don't you uh, ask it? And let's find out. Okay, okay. Um, Well, I I was having a conversation with a friend over coffee the other day and we were talking about how anarcho-capitalism is probably, well, is the most ethical political and economic system you could have simply because there's no initiation of force, there's no violation of property rights and so on. But we were talking about the sustainability and the practicality behind such an anarcho-capitalist society. And we, we came up with two problems with the system. The first problem was, I'll, I'll uh, tell you these one at a time, the first problem was how would we come about establishing an anarcho-capitalist society? Would it have to be through some sort of revolution simply because, you know, it doesn't seem to be politically feasible at the moment when so many people are reliant on the two-party system of Republicans and Democrats? Or would it have to be a slower process that would take many years before we would develop such a society? It's just, it's a very ethical system, but is it practical within the, the coming years, basically, is my question. Okay. Well, let's start with that one. Sure, sure. Let's start with that one. Okay. <laughs> Are you ready for a rant? Yes. I know yes. I am. Farewell voice. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> so you say, oh, so many people are so dependent on the state. Oh, they're so dependent on the state. And therefore, we can't have freedom because people are so dependent on the state. I call staggering amounts of bullshit, not on you, but on that particular approach. Okay, brief history of humanity. Humanity has adapted to the equator. Humanity has adapted 
to the Arctic Circle. <laughs> um, humanity can even adapt to living in a Kardashian household. Humanity has adapted to the Japanese hinterlands and to Siberia and to South America and Madagascar and you name it, humanity has adapted from teeny tiny pygmies to big giant Olafs of Norwegianness. Humanity has managed to adapt to incredibly diverse environments. Humans have overcome saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths and lions and sharks and botulism and the bubonic plague and Ebola and the Kardashians again. I don't mind picking on them, they just come to mind. And so human beings are incredibly resilient. Human beings have adapted to being hunter-gatherers. They have adapted to killing polar bears with brain rays. <laughs> they have adapted to, uh, you know, eating seaweed if they have to. Uh, they have adapted to planting crops. They, I mean, they've adapted to just about anything that you could conceivably imagine. There are Japanese soldiers up until the 80s and 90s, maybe there's still some out there, I don't know, these people seem to be undead who live forever, who haven't adapted to the end of the Second World War and still thinking they're fighting for Hirohito. So human beings, if there's one thing that human beings can do, it's adapt. Now, since human beings can adapt to incredibly wide and varied and highly opposing circumstances. The idea that human beings cannot adapt to, say, getting out of bed at eight o'clock in the morning and going to work is completely incomprehensible and false. It, it, it makes no, it's, it's a complete insult to everything that we know about the adaptability and resilience of human beings. Human beings adapt to excess resources by lazing around and screwing like crazy. <laughs> assuming there's no MGTOW movement. But when you make those resources scarce, shockingly, human beings get up and go to work. I mean, they've seen this millions of times. In the 90s in Canada, there was facing a massive budget shortfall, and because it's not America, we cared. And they cut welfare rates by like 35%. And guess what? All the people on the left were like, oh, the poor, they will starve in the street, will run out of squirrels because they'll be gnawing on them and they'll have to sleep on subway grates. And oh my God, we can't possibly, the pigeons will go missing being roasted over lighters that they found in the toilet. And what happened? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. Hey, they got work. <laughs> of course they did. I mean, they did the same thing under Bill Clinton. Oh shit, I gotta get a job. Okay, I'll get a job. <laughs> and human beings, they don't just, oh, wow, the free drip, drip, drip of government money has stopped, so I'm just going to starve to death like a soccer team on top of the Andes. That's not what happens. Oh, free ride's over? Guess I'll go to work. <laughs> you know, for the most part. There's some people who've got, you know, genuine ailments, illnesses, and all that sort of shit. But that's easily taken care of by charity. But... I remember Harry Brown uh, was, was talking about, you know, if, if they end government schools and the call his caller to one of his shows i think they're still worth listening the caller to his show was like there'll be chaos and harry brown was like eh, maybe for a week <laughs> you know but but people will be like they'll set up schools in their garages if they have to they'll set up schools in their living rooms they'll put up big tents like people will get things done people will just get things done and so the idea that well we can't have a free society because all these people have adapted to statism what we mean by that is women. That's what we mean. Women are minorities. Let's be honest about it. 
Because nobody says, well, you see, we can't have a war because men are not adapted to war. You see, we haven't had a war in a long time. And, you know, men are just not adapted to war, so we can't have it. What we mean is, oh, the precious women and minorities, they've been adapting themselves to government handouts, and so we can't, or, or even the white, I don't know, minorities can be like lazy white people, I don't care, right? But let's just be honest, because no, no, no one ever says, well, you see, it's got to be inconvenient for the men. Side rant, side rant, side rant. You know how everyone says... Should women stay in unfulfilling relationships? Shouldn't they just get divorced, even if there are kids? It's just an unfulfilling relationship. They're bored. Let's just let them go. You know, why should they hang around in unfulfilling relationships? Blah de blah de blah. Because women are precious flowers of hibiscus, egg bearing fruit that must be sheltered from the storms of life. Because I can't remember one fucking article my entire goddamn life, not one article that ever seriously asked the question hey, are you a man? Are you stuck in an unfulfilling job? I mean, you have kids. You have obligations. Your wife's a stay-at-home kid. Uh, your wife is a stay-at-home, and, and you have kids. Are you stuck in an unfulfilling job? Well, let's take a page from the ladies. You see, if you're stuck in an unfulfilling job as a man, you just quit. Other people will figure out what to do. Other, you So you had responsibilities. Who cares? Just quit your job. It's unfulfilling. Why should you stay in an unfulfilling, non-enjoyable job when there's whole levels to be conquered on World of Warcraft? And those snipers in Call of Duty, they're not going to shoot themselves, for God's sakes. And that's a hell of a lot more fun than going to work as an accounting person at a large corporation. That's not fun at all. Your job is unfulfilling. Just quit it. Never heard that in my entire life. Because, see, women, they fragile. Women, if they're not happy, they got to go. But men, get back to the, get back to the trough, man mule. We got to get some stuff from you. So go back. I don't care if it's unfulfilling. You've got responsibilities. So anyway, I just wanted to point that out. But no, I mean, that's just shit. Nobody says, uh, well, you know, we can't invent the car. Because you see, a lot of men have horse and buggy companies. And they can't really be expected to adapt to new humana, humana, humana. Bullshit. Bullshit. Men can adapt and women can adapt. They'll be fine. What we're really scared of is when we say, let's have a free society, we're really scared that women have completely forgotten, en masse, how to be nice to men. <laughs> right? Because they've been programmed out of it for the last 50 or 60 years. Because like men are stupid. Men are unnecessary because I can get my money and cheddar from the government. You see, I don't need penis because government cheese in a van down by the river. Right, so what we're really concerned about is that for the past two or three generations, <clears throat> women have completely lost the habit of appreciating men because they haven't needed men. They can treat men like shit because government comes with the money. Like if the government gave men free sex, there wouldn't be a whole lot of Hallmark cars, chocolate hearts, and dating going on. They'd be like, hey, government sent me over some pussy. Don't need to be nice to the ladies. I'm not saying that's true for all men. It's true for a lot. And so women bring sex and men bring resources. That's the ancient bargain of all of the animal kingdom, insects included. So the idea that we somehow can't adapt, what we're saying is, well, if women actually have to depend on men to bring them resources if they happen to be moms, do we really think that men could be liked by women again? Do we really think that women could end up treating men well and wanting men to stay? In other words, could we ever conceivably think or could society ever conceivably think that a man's needs could be met in a relationship? 
that women could say, well, you know, I uh, have these kids with this guy and it's really important that he stay around because raising kids and breastfeeding and all, it's a lot of work. So I need someone to bring me home with a cheddar. So I got to be nice to this guy. Well, if we don't think that women can ever be nice, let's just be honest about that and say, well, women have turned into, you know, ice queens of infinite testicle scratching icicle fingers uh, and they have nothing of any positive things to bring to men. So we can't possibly have a free society because women are too horrible for men to stick around and pay for <laughs> Well, I don't think it's true, but let's just be honest about it, because I, I never, I mean, I've studied a lot of the history of war, and I don't, uh, I don't ever remember anyone, uh, let alone women in particular, saying, well, you know, can't, can't declare war, man. We, we, we can't do it, you know, I mean, I, you know, maybe we got completely mistaken about 9-11 and thought that Iraq had something to do with it. We can't declare war because, you know, I mean, men aren't adapted for it. There's been peace forever, so men are not adapted. And certainly nobody have ever said, like in the in the 60s, when there was conscription for Vietnam, no one ever said, well, you know, these these men, they're not adapted for war. I mean, their, their fathers may have gone to war, but they never have. We can't possibly. It's too much of a transition. I mean, if anyone doesn't think that the transition from peace to, say, jungle rot, heroin-soaked warfare in the jungles of Vietnam is somehow... Not a bigger change than no longer getting the free drip, drip, drip of government cheddar up your ass. Well, they're wrong. It is a far bigger transition for men to be drafted to go and fight in Vietnam than for other people in society to adapt to a situation of voluntarism and peace and not pointing guns at people to get what they want. So um, men can adapt fine. I think we all accept that. I'm fully confident in the fact that women will somehow uh, very magically rediscover the ancient arcs of being nice to men. <laughs> you know, it's not like we could have had a species without it. And minorities and everyone and the poor whites and the poor blacks, they'll all be fine. They'll just go like, oh, okay, gravy train's done. I guess I've got to get up and walk and, and get some work done. And yes, some single moms will have a tough time because they've got two kids. You know what they'll have to be? Really, really, really nice to a man with resources. They really, they'll have to make him rub his feet. They'll just have to be so nice to him that he's like, okay, well, you come with a lot of bills and two kids who are going to say, you're not my dad for the rest of my natural born existence, but you're such a great human being. I'm going to put all of that aside and I'm going to marry you anyway. So when the women are behind in the eight ball, so to speak, maybe more than eight balls, if they've only got two kids, it could have been 80. But um, they're just going to have to be nice to men. And, you know, it's not like that's completely been lost from their DNA. They'll just wake up one morning and say, oh, shit, no more free government stuff. I got to latch on to a man. And the man will be like, ooh, I don't know. You know, that's a, kind of a heavy cross to bear there, sister. And they'll be like, here's how great I'm going to be as a partner and as a wife and uh, as a mother. And here's how wonderful I'm going to be. Here's how nice I'm going to be. Drama-free, no tantrums, yours forever. I'm going to sign a prenup and it's going to be just great. And they're going to have to wake up in the morning thinking like, how am I going to keep this man happy? Because I got two kids, I got bills, and it's going to be wonderful because that's called love when you actually really, really care about making somebody happy. Now, it doesn't work without incentives. Otherwise, Soviet restaurants would have been the best restaurants in the world. <laughs> and Soviet service, when the waiters got paid either way, would have been the best in the world. It doesn't work without incentives. But incentives breed a lot of love. And uh, the problem is we've really killed love in society by removing the incentives to make other people happy. And the same thing will happen with single dads. Single dads will have to go to the women and say, wow, no more steady diet of government cheese for me. I don't get any more free stuff, so I'll go to the charities. But, man, I've really got to make some woman happy who's going to come and work so I can stay home with the kids. 
uh, and that's going to be a big challenge. So how can I rub her feet and make her life better and so on? So people will just adapt by being nicer <laughs> to people. And uh, I think we can do it. And if we don't think we can, let's just be honest and say, I think that um, single moms and, and all the other people dependent on the welfare state have just become so irreversibly horrible that we can't have freedom because trolls. And I just, you know, let's be honest about that because nobody ever worries about men's transitions in society. Well, I think that's where my question was derived from. How do you convince people that an anarcho-capitalist society based off of voluntary interactions is workable if people are able to adapt? Oh, no, you as you mentioned, no, forget, no, 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 forget workability. <laughs> people aren't going to give up free shit for workability. Sure. Well, no, I know that's what I'm saying. No, like, no, no. People I'll tell you. I'll tell you. Up. I'll tell you what. I'll tell you what you do. Have you ever heard of a place called Costa Rica? Yes. Okay, I'm going to take you on a journey. Are you ready? All right. Yes. Okay. We are flying through the clouds over the rainforest south of Panama to a little lovely place called Costa Rica. Costa Rica, interestingly enough, is home to one of the world's most beautiful, gruesome, and deadly varieties of poison frogs in the world. Sure. Oh, yes. Sure. Richard Attenborough, <laughs> my secret dad, along with the guy who did Cosmos. No, connections. So we are going to open up a restaurant in Costa Rica. And we're going to invite people in. I don't know. What's your favorite food? Uh, I'd say Italian. Okay. <laughs> Is your favorite dressing unspecifiability? <laughs> Can you maybe narrow that down a bit? Oh, uh, I don't know. Um, I'd say mafficholi. It's pretty good. I don't know. You what now? Oh, you're giving me a passive-aggressive backhanded, I can't pronounce this because I'm British, muscovachini now? Yeah, you know, I'm just going to say pizza. I mean, that's... Thank you! Pizza works. Yeah, that works. Thank you. It doesn't really matter, I guess. Okay. <laughs> can, I, can I be an annoying internet pedant for a sec? As usual. <laughs> sure, sure. You know, <laughs> pizza wasn't invented in Italy, technically. Anyway, that's fine. So... So we're going to make pizza. Sure. Now, there are people who are going to come in. Let's just say they're from Mississippi. Now, when you think of Mississippi, outside of the stereotypical Deep South racism, what do you think of when you think of people from Mississippi on vacation? Big, medium, or small people? Uh, larger, yeah. Larger, okay. Definitely larger. Like yeah, meter sure. across the hips, uh, they got to shimmy their way around uh, revolving doors, that kind of stuff, right? Sure, sure. When your mama sure. sits around the house, she really sits around the house. So, yeah, sure. <laughs> so people are going to come into our restaurant, and we know damn well they should not be ordering half a cheese pizza because they're fat, right? In our Costa sure. Rican restaurant with the poison frogs. Now, have you ever tried to talk someone out of a bad habit, Brendan? Uh, no, I don't think so. What? Maybe, I'm not sure. Okay, either A, you have no people yeah. around you with bad habits, and I know you've got status <laughs> there. I can smell them. Or B, you don't give a shit about other bad habits. You just don't care. No, I, now that I think about it, yeah, I couldn't think of any specific examples off the top of my head, but yeah, and I, I definitely have. I said yesterday, gone? so I mean, uh, not so well. 
Not so well. Not so not well. well. <laughs> Did they get offended? They get upset. Who are you to tell me how to live? And bloody bloody blah. I pay your taxes. So yeah, shut they, up. they haven't changed it. Okay, they don't change, right? So people yeah. from Mississippi, they're going to come in. They're going to put their loathsome behemoth's body behinds down on our intentionally uncomfortable bar stools, and they're going to order half a pizza. And we're going to say to them, you know, that's not that great for your cholesterol, and uh, you're not big boned. You're fat, so you really shouldn't be eating this. The consequences of this food will be, this pizza will be bad for them. And what are they going to do? We're going to continue to eat the pizza. Well, they'll probably tell us to screw ourselves and then go next door and get the pizza, right? Okay. So that's not going to work. Right. Sure. Now, (laughs) if on the other hand we say it is a tradition in Costa Rica to blend a poison frog in with the pizza dough. (laughs) Sure. What will they say? Now this, I got to tell you, if you don't know, this like, (laughs) this poison frog shit is insane. Like there's one little, okay. like literally the size of the end of your thumb, this poison frog that has enough poison to kill like 10 adult men. Sure. So okay. if we say it is a, it is a tradition in Costa Rica that we blend a poison frog in with the dough. Sure. Are they going to order pizza? Uh, probably not. I mean, if, they, if, they, if they knew those, those statistics, probably not. Well, even if they didn't, even if they didn't have proof, are they going to take their chance? Like you go and yeah, order that deadly, that deadly poison fish in the Japanese restaurant and the guy's like, I think I cooked it all right. <laughs> you know, the yeah. one that you don't get my meals <laughs> sure, here. Yeah. You'd be like, yeah. I think I will not have that. I think I will instead have the poke in the eye with the chopstick. So, yeah, yeah, probably not. So this analogy, long and labored, as usual, Brendan. But this analogy <laughs> is appealing to consequences for people almost never changes their behavior. Sure. But if sure. they are personally at risk and it's immediate, that would change their behavior. Sure. It's what's got the most chance. Okay. So you're saying that People are willing to accept an anarcho-capitalist society because they see our current political system as one that threatens their livelihoods? No. No. No, it's much more sinister than that. It's going to require for you to be much braver than that, as it does for me, too. The poison frog is the condemnation called your evil. Okay. Because people will say, well, what are the consequences of a free society? I don't care, but you're evil for supporting the state. Sure, sure. The state is evil, and I get it's going to take a little while for you to understand that. But once you do understand it and you can't rebut it, you must now behave better. Evil, the condemnation called your evil, is what motivates people to change. People are so fundamentally driven by good and evil. Mm-hmm. For reasons involved with our integration of concepts and universalization engine called the human brain. Sure. But how do you end slavery? People are going to say, who's going to pick the cotton if we don't have any slaves? Yeah, sure. If you tell them the truth, as I've said before, if you tell them the truth, nobody will believe you. Don't worry. See, there'll be these giant robots about the size of four houses. 
and they're going to be driven around on these fields and they're going to be, let's say, they're going to run on crushed prehistoric tree juice. Yeah, let's go with that. Crushed, crushed prehistoric tree juice because we're straight out of rainbow farts and they're going to creep and pick and all this. There's going to be stuff, right? It's going to be fantastic. Sure. You know, like uh, as, as yeah. uh, what was it? Ann Coulter was saying, and people are saying, well, who's going to pick the strawberries? It's like, you know, they have robots to do that, <laughs> you know? So it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what happens after the immoral stain is taken away. I mean, let me, let me ask you this. <laughs> Let's say you're up against Betty Friedan. Oh, Gloria Steinem in her prime, okay. right? Feminist warriors, right? Yeah, sure, sure. And, and they say, uh, I want to go to work. And you say, who's going to wash my dishes by hand? Who's going to clean my rugs by hand? Who's going to wash my clothes by hand in the river? And they'd be like, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. I want to go to work. And if you try and stop me by force, it's wrong. Sure, and sure. so no one, ever, no one ever said, well, you see, the way that we're going to get your clothes washed is there's going to be these little robot boxes. And you put them in and it swirls them around and takes away all of the dirt. And there's, there's going to be this magic powder. And then these little sheets that make you not explode if you shuffle around in the library and touch your own ass. And there's going to be all this fantastic stuff. And that's how it's going to happen. There's going to be another little box. You put in the dishes and you put in like magic balls and you push a button. And they're clean two hours later after it sounds like a robot is whacking itself off on your kitchen tile for a while. And so you don't have to answer. You don't have to answer the practical consequences. It doesn't matter. Nobody can predict it and it'll be fine. In fact, wanting to answer what freedom looks like is placing yourself squarely between humanity and the door that leads to freedom. You can't have your freedom until you tell me exactly how freedom works in 500 years, or 100 years, or 50 years. I need to know exactly what every rule is going to be. I need to know exactly how the children will be educated, and who's going to date who, and how every poor person is going to be taken care of, and what kind of surgery is going to be available, and I need to know exactly what the rules of Dungeons & Dragons version 667 are going to look like in a hypercube. Can't do it. Nobody can even tell you what the price of stock of Apple is going to be tomorrow, except if you get a private message from Tim Cook, Allah Jim Kramer. Nobody's even going to know. Nobody's going to know. How tall are human beings going to be in, say, 62 years? If you can answer me that, maybe I'll support this freedom thing. Can't tell you. People shouldn't be put in jail for following their conscience. I know that. People should not be initiating force against each other. I know that. We shouldn't be selling off the unborn on the chopping block of Baxter's <laughs> fundamental desire to strip the planet of all its resources. I know we shouldn't be initiating the use of force. I know that for sure. That's wrong. That's evil. What happens when we stop initiating the use of force? women gonna get pregnant if they're not being raped? I mean, we've got Genghis Khan. He's out there raping pretty much everything, including my elbow, my cat, and my ear. 
But let's say Genghis Khan is prevented from raping women. Uh, where are we going to get people from? Can you answer me that? Porn and cups in a windowless room in a fertility clinic. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, I mean, I, I'm not questioning the, the ethics behind an anarcho-capitalist society. I'm just saying the government does have a functioning military that is willing to imprison those who do want to um, do whatever they want to do. For instance, if I, if I wanted to smoke marijuana or whatever, I don't, I'm not into drugs or anything, but hypothetically, if I wanted to smoke marijuana, I, I, I couldn't practically because the government has a police force. They have a military that's willing, willing to imprison me for doing what I want for my body. So I know that's wrong. I know that's unethical, but it, it's just not practical at the moment because there are so many people that are supporting the state and that are supporting the, the government oh, doing all these are, illegal you acts. Excellent. You are excellent at pretending I never spoke. Call them evil. No, I, I, you will be shocked how quickly people change when you call them evil. Well, let me put it this way. You'll be shocked at how quickly your relationship with people will change when you call them evil. Because, and this is, you know, people get upset with me. I call this the against me argument. And it's like, people get upset with me. <laughs> and that's so hypocritical. Because libertarians and classical liberals have been defining the initiation of force as immoral for hundreds and hundreds of years. And I say, here are the logical consequences of calling something evil. When you call something evil, since it only exists because of people's support, the evil only exists because of people's support of it, then the support of evil is the evil. Sure. Right. Oh, if yeah, a, yeah, if yeah. a God only exists, if a God only has presence in people's minds because people believe in it, then getting people to disbelieve in it eliminates the God because it doesn't exist out there. It only exists in people's minds. The state only exists because people believe it's moral. They're wrong. It's evil. Exactly. It's immoral. Yeah. And so people say, well, this thing that I've defined as evil only exists because of people's belief. Therefore, people's belief is the evil. But if I call people who believe it evil because their belief is the evil that I've defined as evil, you're mean. <laughs> well, change your beliefs or tell me that I'm wrong. But you're mean. You're causing trouble in my relationships. No, I'm not causing trouble in your relationships. You're just living consistently. You're living consistently. And if you don't want to live consistently, fine. Get out of the way. People have got work to do. There are adults at the adult table. And it's about goddamn time we got a free society out of this shit heap of human history and this shit heap of exploitation and destruction and degradation. It's about goddamn time we got a free society. And I'm sorry, not you particular, Brandon, but I'm sorry if in general it makes libertarians and other freedom lovers uncomfortable that these are the natural results of calling something evil. People with red hair are evil. They're so evil. They're the only source of evil and the really the only evil that exists in the world. You know you're surrounded by red-haired people. But wait, you're not going to be in conflict with them, are you? It's like, what have you just been saying? The state is evil. It only exists because people believe it's good. Therefore, their belief is the source of the evil. Therefore, their belief is the evil. It is the only reason that that evil exists. And so if you go to people and say... What you believe supports evil, and once you understand that, if you continue to do it, you are evil. Somebody who brings evil into existence, and that evil would not exist 
without them bringing it into existence is the evil. Is the evil. If I go to a peaceful man and I kidnap his family and I say, go and strangle that dog or I'll kill your family, I have created that dog strangulation which otherwise would not exist. I am the only guilty party in that entire interaction. And if people's belief in the state is the only reason why debt and war and unjust imprisonment and the strangling of economic opportunity and the programming and degradation of the capacity of children to think, if this is the only reason why all of these evils exist, then by God, we have to call a spade a spade. Or we have to get out of the way and let people with stronger stomachs do it. Sure. Sure. Well, I mean, not, not only that, but um, I remember Murray Rothbard actually brought up in his book, I think it was Anatomy of the State, I don't remember, but he brought up how government naturally forms out of militaries and police forces and so forth because they have they have the guns and they're able to enforce whatever laws and regulations they impose as a result of having those guns. So I, I was you know, wondering, I mean, would governments naturally exist even if you had an anarcho capitalist society, or at least naturally come about as a result of certain individuals obtaining guns, you know, and, and, and having a military and having a police force and establishing a government that could even be more authoritarian than the, the current democratic system we have. Now, I'm not saying our democratic system is ethical, but I'm saying it could potentially be worse. It could potentially be something like uh, Soviet, Soviet Russia under Stalin or something like that. You know what I'm saying? So, okay. Let's say, let's say you're a really hot chick. Okay. You're a really hot chick. And uh, some guy jumps you in an alley. Okay. And he's going to rape you. Sure. Now you have a nice little pearl-handled revolver in your purse. He doesn't know about it. Okay. Okay. And you pull it out. And you say, well, I could shoot this guy. Maybe I could threaten him. I don't know. I'm not an expert on this. People say if you're going to pull out a gun, just shoot. Don't threaten. Because if he's got a bigger gun, he'll shoot you, right? Yeah. I, Is I that your belief? That. Like if you pull out a gun, just shoot someone? I, I'm not even sure. I actually was mugged once, but I didn't take proper actions. But um... All right. So, so you're, you're this hot chick, and this guy's trying to rape you, and you've got a gun. And let's say the only way you can save yourself is shooting him. Okay. Yeah, now, sure. will you say to yourself, well, I don't know, I could shoot this guy and not get raped, but I am a hop chick, so this might happen again at some point in the future. Would that stay your hand? Mm. Would you then let yourself be raped because it's possible oh, no, that no. you might get raped at some point again in the future or, or be threatened with it? No, I would defend myself. So the fact that there may be another government that grows out of whatever goo people are putting into your brain or other people's brain, the fact that another government may grow out of a state of freedom at some point in the future, who cares? Well, you know, my, my I, problem I, I, got, is... I got cancer a couple of years ago and I'm like, kill it, kill it with fire. <laughs> well, you know, you could get cancer again at some point in the future. Kill it with fire, yeah. nuke it from orbit. Yeah. <laughs> I see where you're coming from, but my, my problem with that analogy is w with the the attractive chick or whatever. I mean, it, it's not 
like it's it's not a sure thing that she's going to be raped in the future. I mean, it's definitely more possible than if she was unattractive, but it's not like a hundred percent certainty that she's going to be raped in the future. Whereas government Even if naturally she is, formed, you still pull the trigger, and then you keep your gun with you for the future. I agree. I'm saying government naturally forms out of either people's acceptance or, or wanting of some institution to exist or some military or police force that's coming out. So there's no, almost no, a no, no, much no, more no, of a certainty. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Sorry, sorry. Because you're not making an argument. You're just saying naturally forms. Sure. I mean, if that logic's form. correct, I don't have any statistics to back that up because I've no, never no, seen no, it. No, 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 no. Hang on, hang on. Okay. Let's say we live in a free society, right? Sure. Let's say you want to start a government. Tell me what your plan, what, is your, what are your steps going to be? Well, I'd, I'd probably have to have a military to enforce my rules, because if I didn't, then no one would follow my rules. Uh, so okay, establish so some sort of... How, some, how do you get a military? Uh, I'd have to recruit support for my ideas, or, or offer, like, let's say, economic favors for supporting me and say like if you serve in my military or whatever then i'll give you hundred thousand dollars or something like that you know like offer political and economic favors if okay okay so let's take this one step let's take this one step at a time okay sure so in a free society everyone can have whatever weapons they want right Sure. And probably there will be like uh, insurance companies won't want you having a tank in your backyard and shit, right? So that's yeah, sure. not going to happen, right? But let's just say handguns or whatever, right? So, so people have a lot of weapons. So let's say you live in a country of 100 million people and you don't know what kind of weapons they might have. How many troops, how many soldiers do you think you would need to take over a country of 100 million people with unknown numbers of, of weapons. Well, I mean, it, it would have to take a significant amount of time, but what you could do is you could start by invading a neighboring city, for example, or a neighboring county, and then okay, recruit everyone fantastic. in that city. Fantastic. Okay, hang on, hang on, hang so. on, hang on. So you've, you, you, let's say you've got a neighboring city, and let's say in that city, it's not that big a city, it's a million people, right? <clears throat> sure, sure, okay. Okay, so how are you going to get together an army that is going to invade and take over not just a million people, but a million people who also have security guards and a private police force and maybe even a private military just in case some asshole from outer space comes by or whatever or some someone from some other country. So it's going to have some level of weaponry. How are you going to get enough of an army together with nobody noticing? Because if they notice... They'll just cut off your electricity. They'll cut off your bank accounts because all of these people are going to have a little little claws. Love to do business with you. No armies, asshole. No, it's the no armies, asshole. The nah, no armies, asshole is going to be in there. You can have a bank account with us, but no armies, asshole. You can have a house and I'll be supplying you with electricity and food and water unless you're building a giant robot army in your basement, in which case you're totally cut off, right? So you're going to have to amass some kind of army of 100,000 people, you're going to have to find a way to pay them. You're going to have to find a way to arm them. And you're going to have to find a way to feed them and to house them with no one noticing. Sure, sure. Well, yeah. How, it, how are you going to do that? It'd have to, be, it'd have to be one step at a time. But, 
I mean, but no, 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 no. You don't get to say one step well, at a time. To, you know, I mean, you couldn't do it all at once. I will jump to the moon in two foot increments because I can only jump two foot at a time. It's like, nope, can't do it. Yeah. Well, then how do governments form then? I mean, it, doesn't it start out with one group has some military or whatever? They're able to take over a neighboring village and then recruit even more. I mean, isn't like the history of the existence of the state isn't that the result of having a military that's stronger than the neighboring military and they're able to invade and then, you know, assert their laws and regulations and so forth as a result of having that military? I mean, isn't... No. Governments form out of child abuse. Governments form out of child abuse. I've got a whole book, a whole audio book from Lloyd DeMoss uh, called The Origins of War in Child Abuse. You can get it at freedomainradio.com slash free. It's right down there. There's a PDF you can read if you don't want to listen to me talk about it. Governments <laughs> form child abuse because children get abused and they learn that might makes right. And they learn that to have authority is to have power and to impose your will violently. And then they grow up into a society where, guess what? There's a giant set of secular powers that impose their will violently and it just kind of feels right. You know, governments sure. grow in a society the way that Japanese language grows in Japan, because that's how the children are trained. <laughs> so that's where you have governments. And that's why far back in history, society coalesced itself around childhoods. Childhood is like the great unspoken and unspeakable physics of human society. Um, the child is the father of the man. And child abuse is the father of the horrors of the world. So if you okay, want so to change society and you want to change statism, you have to change uh, people's childhoods to the point where they don't grow up thinking that authority is something uh, aggressive and violent and imposes its will against against their will with no recourse. Um, so, uh, abusive so guess, parent how, how do you of the state. I'm sorry. So, so I guess how do you change it then? I, I completely disagree. I mean, I, I completely agree with you that there's a lot of indoctrination going on, especially with our public education system. But how do you change that in a, a short amount of time? Would it have to be a, a longer period of time to, you know, I mean. How do you change what? Completely overhaul our current wait, wait, education talked, system. Sorry, sorry, Brendan. We've talked a lot about a lot of things. What do you mean when you say how do you change it? What do you mean? You mean you mean statism, society, violence, if, uh, if childhood? If I understood you uh, correctly. Yeah, well, I mean, if I understood you correctly, uh, one of the major reasons for why governments form is the indoctrination of children or whatever. They're taught to believe that they need a state in existence. And in um, one of the ways the, the government is able to do that, that indoctrination is through the public education system. But that education system has become so ingrained within society. How, how are you able to overhaul that system in a short amount of time? Would it have to be a long period of time? Would there be like well, some no, it's revolutionary? Easy. It's easy I mean, it's, it's easy in practice. It's tough to implement emotionally. But if you want sure. to make the post office more efficient, how do you do that? I'm not, I'm not do sure you go and lecture them about efficiency? Do you, uh, uh, do you cut off their – I mean, what do you do? How do you make the post office, the government-run post office, more efficient? Sure. I mean, you yeah, probably have to do like convince them of a more efficient method. I'm, I'm, I'm no expert on, on what goes on at the post office, but um... – Oh, come on. This is not – do you think I'm asking you some tricky – Technical expertise question? Yeah, probably not. <laughs> How do you make the post office efficient when it's run by the government? Uh, I guess open it up to competition. Yeah, you privatize it. You change it from a coercive relationship to a voluntary relationship. Sure, okay, okay. Right. Okay. 
So that's how you change the family. Sure. Okay. Uh, but again, would that have to be, you know, would that be something that's short term? Or are we able to do that in the short term? You know what I'm saying? I, I, I just can't see waking up tomorrow and seeing the, the whole education system being overhauled and, and wait, wait, why are you, you talking know, about the education system? I haven't mentioned it. Hang on, hang on. I haven't mentioned anything about the education system. Oh, when I mean education, I'm just saying like how, how children are, are growing up, not necessarily the actual schooling itself, but how. No, no. Why, why are we talking about what, what have we just been talking about? Why, why, why are we off on schools? I, I thought you know, your, your post office analogy was related to the education. I mean, no, uh, no, no. Post office analogy was related to the family. Not the school. Well, no, no, no. That's what I'm saying. Like when I say education, I'm not necessarily saying the school itself, but the schooling and the parenting and everything that just plays a role in indoctrinating children to believe in the existence of the state. Does that make sense? No, because when you talk about the okay. education <laughs> system, I don't think you're talking about parenting. And when you talk about schools, I don't think <laughs> you're talking about parenting. Yeah, but, but, but you would agree that they both play a role, right, in indoctrinating children, both parents and the school system. I mean, you can choose either one, but I mean, right? I mean, they both play a significant role in indoctrination of other you know, children. If, uh, if, if spanking is immoral, let's just take one, one example, right? So because, you know, 70 to 80 percent of parents in America are still spanking and a lot of the others are lying. But anyway, um, Let's say that uh, we're just talking about spanking. How do you end spanking? Well, of course, you want to encourage parents to be better parents. And you want to give parents the facts and so on. But as we already talked about, negative consequences don't change people. We just did a whole presentation called The Death of Reason about how consequences, reason, and evidence don't change shit in people's heads. Because what's in people's heads is shit. Is self-defense, is justification, is trauma, is is avoidance. Uh, you know, we may, in fact, be seeing a tiny bit of that in, in this conversation. But um, <laughs> the way that you uh, the way that you you do it is um, you you give as much positive information to people as possible, and then you tell people, oh, if your parents spanked you, if they hit you, that was immoral. That was evil. Oh, they did the best they could, but the knowledge they had. Bullshit. I refuse to hold society to a lower standard than society has held men to, particularly white men. Fuck you, society, if you... If you don't think we've noticed, we white men. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, I, don't, yeah. I don't ever remember feminism saying, well, you see, you've got to be sympathetic towards men because they're doing the best they can in the patriarchy with the knowledge that they had. No, male chauvinist pigs, evil patriarchy, down with the patriarchy, heterosexual sex is rape, rapists, evil, patriarch. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, so I get how this works. If you don't like something, you scream evil at it until it changes, and it'll change pretty damn quickly. See, we've been on the receiving end of that weapon, but the moment I try and put that weapon into the hands of men, it's like, oh, my God, it's evil. No. No, it, it's wrong. Look, even if we say that the fem feminist theory is correct, the men who grew up in patriarchy should be viewed as victims of patriarchy. Sure. It wasn't their fault. 
It's just the way they were raised. No, it's what their mothers no, did. It's what I, the, but I, I no, that's not what happened. What happened was men were screamed at for being immoral and evil and racist and sexist and scum and chauvinistic and patriarchs and blah, blah, blah. You just scream epithets at people until they change. Okay, I get it. I'm being a whole lot nicer <laughs> than other people are, but I get it. This is the rules for radical stuff. This is what you do. You just scream epithets at people until they change. Now, if those epithets are actually just and fair, good, then, then all, all the better. But that's what you do. Yes. So you say to people, oh, did your parents spank you? That was immoral. That was evil. That was wrong, what they did. And hopefully the parents will listen and accept and change and so on. But if they won't, then people have choices to be made. And my concern is with the next generation. Like only like when you understand how child abuse and the way children are treated, how much that drives society, then all you care about fundamentally is the next generation. Is it the Fed this? Is it interest rates that? That stuff's interesting and it's worthwhile getting people into the conversation that way. But my sure. sole focus sure. fundamentally is the next generation. Now, if people, they were abused by their parents and their parents are unrepentant, my particular preference, everyone can make their own choices, but I, if I had my magic wish, abusive grandparents should not be inflicted upon children, their grandchildren. You know, if you have an alcoholic father, you shouldn't let that alcoholic father who drunk drives, you shouldn't let him drive around your babies in the back of his car. That's bad parenting because it's really fucking damaging to them. And if you have some screaming, abusive banshee as a mother, you do not have the right to expose your children to an abuser. You do not have the right to expose your children to an abuser. The cycle has to stop somewhere. And if your parents change and they become better and you get this wonderful thing, it's happened and I've had those parents on this show and I applaud them. I think it's wonderful. Great. If your father sobers up and he's been sober for a number of years, okay. Maybe he can take the kids out for a Sunday drive. But if he's unrepentantly committed to both drinking and driving, you cannot let your kids be driven around by him. And if you have an abusive parent around, you don't have the right to expose your children to that toxicity. Like in the same way, you may have the right to smoke as long as it's outside and it's not affecting your kids, although it's kind of an asshole thing to do because you're supposed to be there for your kids. But you don't have the right to force your children to smoke. You don't have the right to inflict an environmental toxin on them. So in the same way, if you've got some horrible, abusive parent, you can go out and, and see them if you want. Although I think that's an asshole thing to do because it's going to screw you up for coming back home to your parents. But you don't have the right to expose your children to an environmental toxin, whether it's lead in the walls, a la Freddie Gray, uh, whether it's uh, secondhand smoke, uh, whether it's um, uh, cyanide or whatever, lead paint from China, I don't know. Or it's an abusive uh, environment. You just you don't have that right, and that's how you get it done. Sure, sure. Yeah, and I think you and I both agree that you know all those things are unethical and, and inherently evil. Uh, I guess one last uh, quick question. Oh, dude, you hang on, hang on, hang on. How many okay, call okay. calls have we got, Mike? When just I just one quick, more on really the line. Quick. One more on the line. Okay, Brandon, please, please keep this quick. Do not trip over any, any rant wires in my brain because they like, seem to be all over the place like today. Go ahead. Answer. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's just... Um, Wait, each? More than one? Man, you're like, you're like, you're like, you're like uh, Gandalf with, with dwarves at the beginning of The Hobbit. Okay. One really quick question. It's, it's, um, when do you think 
that all this evil, all this, you know, terrible indoctrination or whatever, when do you think that we are going to truly have a voluntary society built on, you know, the non-aggression principle and no violation of any property rights or anything? When do you think that's reasonably going to happen in the future? I can tell you that exactly. Okay. <laughs> when you want it to. It's a very powerful because you think answer. that there's some, you think that there's some change, some movement out there that you might be able to catch the wave of. Brendan, it's exactly when you commit yourself to it and when you make it happen in your environment. Society right now is in this fog of relativism. Uh, nobody really has to make any particular moral choices. Now, when people are in a fog of relativism, they tend to become hysterically vitriolic witch hunters, which is why you see these witch hunts going on all the place uh, in society. Duke LaGrosse! Right? I mean, you see these witch hunts going all the time because relativism does not make people peaceful. Relativism makes them vengeful. And... Society doesn't have to make any stark fucking choices anymore. And I think that is the most horrible place for society to be. Because when society refuses to make the easier moral choices, it ends up having to make much more difficult moral choices. So right now, for instance, there are old people who are ripping off the young because there's fuck all in the social security accounts. And rich people who have nine times or ten times the assets of young people are like ancient, wizened, cryptkeeper vampires sucking the economic juice out of the youth of the future. They gave all their money to the government and said, hey, I'm sure this is coming back because governments are so great and trustworthy. I'm going to give them all this money and I'm going to be like, hey, when I get older, I bet you there's going to be a giant honeypot of well-saved, well-invested currency that I gave to the money over time of the government. It's great. When have they ever lied to us? When have they ever screwed us over? I mean, I might as well put it in gold. And there's nothing there. Nothing there. You're stealing from the young. Stop it. It's not the young people's fault that you bent over and thought you were going to get roses when the government boned you up the butt. It's not the young people's fault. They didn't even vote when you, when you sold your fucking freedom for pennies, for empty promises. Oh, yeah, this guy who's currently in power, who's 55 years old, he's going to promise me money in 40 years because... Politicians are nothing if not concerned about the effects of their policies long after they're dead. What politician would ever sell lies which he'll never have to fulfill long down the road in the future, which he can blame on some other no, bankers? What politician would ever want power in the here and now in return for unverifiable promises that he'll never have to fulfill? <laughs> I mean, this is such an obvious scam, and anybody who claims that they didn't have any clue is just completely ridiculous and shouldn't be listened to with any seriousness. I mean, I'd rather listen to somebody explain to me in great detail how the world is in fact flat and nobody ever went to the moon than the fact that the social security was a really great idea. You know, they do start wars and put people in jail unjustly, but I'm sure they're going to hang on to this $5,000 for me. Well, no problem. It's like in uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, is it, where he gives his uh, beautiful car 
to this incredibly skeezy looking uh, parking lot attendant, right? And of course, they bring it back, but that's much more likely than that the government's going to hang on to your money. So we don't have any fundamental choices. So people aren't saying, like, Donald Trump brings up one tiny little fundamental choice, which is, how do you want your country to look in 50 years? One tiny fundamental choice. Relative to other things that are going on, it's not hugely significant. And everybody freaks out. Because, like, wait a minute, we can't have it both ways? We can't have it both ways? Everyone's addicted to the DP of fantasy and (laughs) superstition. And it's like, what? What do you mean? I have to make a choice? Resources aren't infinite? It's one or the other? Oh, my God. Amygdala. I'm R. I can't do it. Keep the K away from me. It's It's not ketamine. It's not some cereal. It's reality. Right? So... So the people are like, there's no choice. Okay, the choice that was presented to me is that, look, if you're mean to your wife, she's going to leave you. Hey, if you're mean to your kids, maybe they'll leave you. Probably. You know, if, if, if I'm mean to my customers, you know, we just had a guy call in, yeah. I'll get fired. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so uh, if, if I'm mean to my girlfriend, she shouldn't stay with me because, you know, it's just not a satisfying relationship. See, women should be able to leave unsatisfying relationships. Okay, is it a satisfying relationship if the elder generation has voted for free shit after free shit after free shit after free shit, leading you buried under hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt and voted away all your freedoms because goodies and because, well, I don't want to be called a racist, so I'll vote for a socialist. Exactly, exactly. So if they didn't have the courage to stand up for anything that that, that the elder generation bequeathed upon them in terms of freedoms... Who should have any respect for these boomers? You know, the boom sound is the engine crossing the sound barrier to fascism. That's how it works. So we don't have, like, there's no money. There's no money for Social Security. So whose fault is that? It's not the young people's fault. They didn't vote for it. Older people's fault. So there's no money. So stop taking people's money. But don't, people don't want those choices. They freak out because we've gotten into this hazy world of nothing and everything and goo and distraction and let's be nice and let's not bring up anything contentious. Well, you may not want to bring up something contentious, but reality sure as hell is going to. So you'll have a society when you start giving people the stock of real choices that exist in the world. Hit your kids, there'll be consequences. Hit your wife, there'll be consequences. Continue to rape husbands through the divorce court process, there will be consequences in that men will stop working, men will stop marrying. You can ride the cock of the alpha state all the way into the Stygian hell of fascism and economic decay, but at some point that shit's going to run out and you're going to have to learn how to be nice again to men who are really pissed off at you. And that's going to be tough. And it's going to be hard. And it's going to be ugly to see you try and look pretty because the men will know that the women are only coming back because the government ran out of money. Uh, sure. You know, I'm back from Vegas. I don't know if this is Ben Affleck's conversation with, uh, with Jennifer Garner. I'm back from Vegas. I, I've decided to quit gambling because they threw me out and I ran out of money. I love you. Can I get a kiss? Yeah. yeah. Right? I mean, it's, it's, uh, the women are only going to come back to the men because the government's run out of money. This is why I want women to do it before the government runs out of money, which is why exactly. some time back ago... I put out the why men should, why men don't want to get married, which is men are waiting for an apology. 
Sorry we treated you like shit for two generations and sorry that your father's got divorced and raped in the courts and thrown into the trash heap and pushed around and robbed and all that. Sorry about all that shit. But you all, women, you better do this shit and better turn this around before the government runs out of money. Otherwise, no one's going to believe you when you say that you're sorry. Oh, shit. No more free stuff. I got to latch onto a man. Okay, I'm sorry. Can I, can I get some money now? I'm totally sorry. That was terrible. Oh, feminism, that horrible stuff. Oh, the divorce court stuff. Yeah, you can tell me about men's rights. Hey, listen, can I get some money? Because, you know, I got to get some stuff. And the government's out of money. Okay, I got to give you a blowjob. You're the hardest thing ever. Uh, can I get some money now? It's like, who's going to believe that shit, right? Anyway, so no, it's no, going to happen yeah. when you start giving stock choices to society that actually exist within reality. And it's emotionally uncomfortable to do. I get it. We're all conformists all want to get along with the tribe and all that, but we've got to have that yeah. stuff. We can't live in a post-tribal, post-industrial, highly technological society and then be run by Stone Age conformity. I mean, we can, but we're just going to end up back in the no. Stone Age. Okay, man. Got to move on to the next call. Thank you for your call. All right, thank you really Appreciate it. Yep, thank you. All right, thank you, Brendan. By the way, Mike... <laughs> okay. <clears throat> My daughter enjoys... This uh, this show uh, called um, Race to the Edge. It's it's from How to Train Your Dragon, and in it there are two twins named Rough and Tough, and in one episode they want a boar pit, and people say, well, "Why do you want a boar pit?" And he's like, "Everybody needs a bit of entertainment." And at one point they're planning some outpost, and they're the two, the two twins are in the background. Do you know what they're saying? Boar pit. Boar pit, boar pit, boar pit, because they really want a boar pit. So for those who don't know, like Mike gives me some feedback during the show as I'm doing it, and much in the same way that Rough and Tough say boar pit, Mike's like, pedant, pedant, more pedant, more pedant. So I just wanted to point out. (laughs) I'm definitely not just enabling, but thoroughly encouraging the pedant voice. (laughs) So Mike's, Mike's. Mike's pedant fetish is why your ears hurt at the moment and my voice. But I just wanted <laughs> to mention. And I know that saying other people's opinions in a whiny voice is like a cheap trick. I know, but I like the pedant voice. It makes me laugh. So, <laughs> got to balance so the two philosophy. Of them. Mike needs a giggle. <laughs> and apparently, I have no will of my own. So, I just wanted to let you know that, everyone. Like a kite in the wind. He just goes. I wake up in the morning and it's like, how can I please Mike today? <laughs> If only that were true. Now, <laughs> you know, just uh, let me just mention before we move on to Dante, we were talking about Mars and immigrants to the moon or something like that. That would uh, that would actually unite the left and right, I think, if we sent all the illegal immigrants to the moon. The conservatives would be happy, you know, to see the end of the immigrant crime problem. And the liberals would be thrilled because we're increasing NASA's funding. So it's just a wet dream for everyone involved. So... Only if they had voting, right, voting rights and have the, have the lightest anchor babies of the solar system. <laughs> Actually, I think Donald Trump wants to build a fence so high that with like an additional leap or two, you can get to the moon. So. Yeah, we've been talking about a lot of good and evil. And now we're bringing up a caller named Dante because synchronicity, baby. <laughs> da, da, da. Dante. Um His question, he's got a bunch of libertarian-esque questions, and the first one on the list is a libertarian favorite. How do you think roads in a free society should work? Should they be regulated and maintained by private entities for a toll to pass through, or should they be free for everyone to use? That's from Dante. That's question number 
numero uno. Okay, we we'll do, we'll do it one at a time. Mm-hmm. What does what does free mean there, Dante? Um, does that mean does that mean that you're going to dedicate your life to growing your own food and building roads that you're not going to charge anyone for? Well, I don't know. I, I was just the question came to me one day, and um, and I was just kind of wondering about it. You know, um, would it be like a like some sort of? No, no, no. Hang on. Already, you're not answering my question. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What does free mean? What does free mean? Free um, for everyone to use. Well, who pays for them? Free for everyone to use. Um, well, I, I kind of thought about it. You know, if we're if we're considering free, um, in a sense that uh, maybe a, a logging company or, or you know whatever kind of a, a company could um, that economically benefits from the road would maintain it. Okay. Um, so I think what you mean by that is so when you're a logging company, you want to go out into the woods and get your trees and you want to build logging roads. And I used to use these up north, terrifying, because, you know, the logging trucks don't ever imagine there's any going to be anyone else on the road. They didn't usually, you might mind you using the roads, but they come around the bend at hugely high speeds with like four tons of trees on them. But um, so, yeah, I mean, if you're going to build a cottage, you've got to build a road to that cottage, right? So and you may want to keep that um, maintained. But um, still not free, right? You just you pay for it yourself. Yes, yes. Okay, so tell me where the free part comes in. Um, I guess it means free for people who don't necessarily benefit economically from the road. I mean, I'm sure they would benefit somehow from crossing it, but um, but just not some organization that has decided that they need it more than someone else does so they decided to that oh my it's god in their okay stop 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 <laughs> Sorry. do you even know what you're saying i'm, I'm I mean, just yes, curious i'm 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 saying that if um let's say there's one company uh, let's say you know logging company they have big trucks no 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 logging is a private use road and usually over is overgrown after you finished harvesting the trees so we're talking about paved highways and stuff right well yeah, let's say let's say a I mean, different it, company. It, if if you want to live in a society only with logging roads, I don't want to be there. <laughs> so let's just go a little bit further, right? Um, uh, let's say it's like a concrete truck or something, and you know, some sort of a big vehicle uh, that notices this pothole in the road, and they say, "We can't get past this pothole, so why don't we fix it? Because it will be in our economic best interest, even though it will cost money to fix the road." It would also be economically beneficial for us to move our concrete or, you know, gas or whatever across it. Okay, that's still not free because they have to go and get the materials and the expertise to fix the pothole, which means they have to raise the price of their concrete. So that's still not free because it's just paid for by the people who buy their concrete. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess I didn't mean free then. <laughs> no, and that's important because yeah, when people yeah. use the word free, it's like... Only in Magic Land, right? Exactly. I, I, I and not so, about that. yeah. So there's there's no free, and of course there's an incentive for them not to fix the pothole, which is that if they can just get past it, and the next concrete truck built fixes the pothole, they get the value of the fixed pothole without having to raise their prices. So they get a free good, and they get a competitive advantage by not fixing the pothole. So I don't think that's something you could rely on, right? Whenever you're hoping for selflessness. It's going to happen for sure, but you just can't build a society on it. Um, I guess as a follow-up question. Um, Hang on. I don't even know if we've answered this one, right? Because we still don't know, right? Who, we, okay. 
who fixes the potholes uh, in Disneyland? Uh, the Disney. It's not a trick question. <laughs> it's not a cartoon character. Uh-huh. <laughs> Goofy. Uh, no. <laughs> Yeah, the, the oh. company, yeah, <laughs> Disney itself, the uh, the company. That's right. A giant frozen Walt Disney comes out and shaves <laughs> ice into the right. No, so they they fix their right. They build all these roads mm-hmm. and they clean up all the garbage, and because that's what people want, right? Mm-hmm. And if you buy a, uh, it's like who fixes the carpet in the hallway of the condo building? Well, everyone, because they all want to live where they're not tripping all over wrecked up carpets and stuff so if a carpet gets worn out or gets a big rip in it or whatever then they they fix it and they they pay for that because right it's their property right yeah so whoever you know how do roads get built well roads get built when it's economically viable to build those roads so if if you build a whole bunch of houses obviously no one's going to buy them if you've got to take to the sewers to get there right so they're going to build a road out of this thing and you're going to have a contract. Nobody's going to want to buy a house if the contract is, well, the road's going to be maintained for six months. And then we're going to let it go to shit, right? I mean, they're yeah. not going to do that. They want, they want to know that the roads are going to be maintained for as long as they uh, have their house, right? Mm-hmm. So my guess would be that, that people who have the house at an end of a road will want that road maintained. And they'll contract with a company and they'll say it's a 20-year contract, but every year we can cancel it if we want, if you become uncompetitive or lazy or whatever. And there'll be people constantly bidding up how to make better roads and, and do better things with roads and make them last longer and be cheaper to maintain and whatever, right? And then other people will be inventing jetpacks and teleportation devices. And I'm only semi-kidding about that. I'd rather come up with working from home stuff and find ways to, to bypass roads, right? Mm-hmm. And so – that's how roads and how do they get paid for well with gps it's become very simple right and that you can literally bill people and you can set up anonymous stuff right you right if you want to not know where uh, have people not know where you're driving just set up an entire anonymous account or whatever and um the gps would would feed the data to some central computer which would charge you and the money would be distributed among whoever had the roads so i mean that's just one possibility out of many many but that would be i imagine how it would work now let's say i wanted to um get somewhere far away and I needed to use like uh, an interstate and um, you know a lot of interstates are kind of in generally uh, more rural areas at least a lot of the ones I've been through don't really have a lot of uh, a lot of uh, like houses and things bordering it Um, how would you suggest that um, those kind of roads be maintained and and whatnot you mean where there's no economic there's not enough traffic to justify it economically um not that there's not enough traffic, but that there's not, you know, a a a a, per, a property owner in the vicinity that can. Oh no no no! It's whoever whoever drives on the road would pay the toll, and it would be uh, a, an electronic thing, mm-hmm. and so you wouldn't need to worry about it. You just you just get a bill, right? You just get a bill. Now, if there's if there's a giant highway that leads to five people then there's no conceivable way that they can afford. <laughs> they can afford it with the government, right? Because you yeah. just offload the costs onto everyone else. But if there's a, a village with five people at the end of a 50-mile-long road, there's no way <laughs> that they could possibly maintain that, so they'd move. Mm-hmm. Right? They'd have to abandon their houses because they couldn't afford to maintain the road, and that's good because what a huge waste of resources it is to keep driving up and down a road that's not barely used. 
Now, what do you suppose would happen if um, there was really only one way, or at least one, you know, uh, easy way to get somewhere, and um, and uh, a company decided to, you know, whatever company or a group of people. Oh, hang on, I think I know this one. So this is like you, you. You, you've got a house, and they build a road all the way around your house, and then they charge you $500 for you to drive on the road to leave your house. Is that, that's the one, right? Yeah, something like that, yeah. What's the, um, what's the solution? Why would you buy a house unless you had a contract that says, I'm not going to be overcharged to use the ro- only road that leads to my house? You, you wouldn't buy that house. Well, I, I'm, it wouldn't be a, necessarily a road to a house, but maybe just a, a main highway to get to a... No, listen, no, come on, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Like, this is sort of like a question like this. And I'm sorry, I'm going to use this voice again because I'm enjoying it. So <laughs> this is not meant to make fun of you. I just, right? Okay. No worries. So, Steph, I've got a question for you. Hannah Free Society, how would it work if, let's say, I'm the only guy who flies to a little island off Hawaii... And I drop people off there for $1,000, and then I charge them $10,000 to come back. And nobody else, well, 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 nobody else is going to come out that way, so they have to pay me the $10,000. How would that be stopped in a free society? Well, they're called round-trip tickets. You pay for them up front, right? I mean, who the hell is going to be dropped off on an island and then say, yeah, charge me whatever you want for the way back because I've totally got a strong position called I don't want to starve on this island, right? <laughs> yeah. Right? So, so I mean, if, if, you've, if there's only one road that comes to your house, then you, you, you're not going to buy that house. You're not going to build that house unless you have a guarantee that these prices are not going to go insane, right? Uh-huh. Now, if, if somebody, let's say, just breaks the contract, then you sue them and get your money back. Or let's say that uh, they get bought out by somebody and that the contract is torn up and so on, and then they want to charge you $500 to use that road. Well, it's not your road. Somebody's overcharging, which means that they're going to get hugely negative publicity, right? Because everybody's afraid mm-hmm. of this. Right, somebody's got a monopoly control over your service, and they jack up their prices. Every like everybody knows that that's so unfair, and it's kind of an abuse of some economic influence. I don't want to say power because I want to confuse it with the state. And so, you know, guess what's going to be on every news item? You know, asshole incorporated charged five hundred dollars <laughs> for the guy to get, and his wife is sick and he needs to get to the hospital, and they're charging him five hundred dollars. Right? Yeah, yeah. That's kind of that's kind of what I thought would. People. And then, and then, what's going to happen to you, your company reputation? Who's going to want to do business with you? No one. <laughs> no one. And and are your investors going to be happy that you've destroyed the value of the business in business? And people, I hate to be annoying, but people who've not been involved in the buying and selling of business, there's something called goodwill, and goodwill is roughly defined as the positive perception that your company has, right? Mm-hmm. And so somebody who wants to, you know, you've got, you've got, I don't know, one road that leads to an old age community and you jack it up to 500 bucks a passage, right? Yeah. Okay. They get on the phone, they get the media out there and they're all these sad eyed old people looking at the world they can no longer get to. (laughs) Looking at the road that to them leads nowhere. Looking at the medicines they cannot afford to buy. Because Asshole Incorporated jacked up the price of their road tolls for no reason whatsoever. How's that going to play 
in Peoria. Yeah, tears rolling down their cheeks. And you know what you'll do? You'll get their grandchildren way down at the end of the road, waving, (laughs) waving at them plaintively, calling and saying, I'm sorry, we can't see you, granddaddy. This is the closest that Asshole Incorporated will let us get. I'm so sorry. I miss you so much. (laughs) Right. This is what you'll do. I haven't Mm -hmm. been this sad since I watched an Indian cry as a motorist threw something out their window. Yeah, because that's the big problem the Indian (laughs) Literate. Not tuberculosis-laden blankets, buckshot, and false promises from the government. It's a potato chip bag. That's their big issue. Not the vast majority of their children imbibing copious amounts of copier fluid. It's a gum wrapper. Think positive. Maybe the car is going to a casino, though. (laughs) (laughs) The great vengeance of the Indian tribes, tobacco and gambling. Anyway, I think it's about even now, guys. Let's stop with the smoking. Um, But no, so, so, I mean, that is going to, like, the investors will sue you. Because if you as a corporate executive, whatever that looks like in a future society, it's not going to be the same as it is now. But if you as a business manager, like you're the CEO of that company, and you decide to jack up rates, and you get ridiculously bad publicity out of that, and the value of people's shares declines by half, which is a very generous estimate, probably would be worse than that, those people can sue you for knowingly making a business decision that had a high likelihood of destroying the value of their stock. Mm. Wow. That's really, I never thought about that one. That's awesome. It is. Um, so I have another question. And the actually, question the, number two. Go. The answer, like, I guess, well, at least a potential answer kind of came to me today as I was sitting in a, in a, um, a mythology class. And we were talking about how the... Wait, hang on. Uh, wait, wait, you're studying political science? Oh, rimshot. <laughs> right there. Go on. Um, so we were talking about how the Greek city-states, the very decentralized Greek city-states, um, fended off the Persian Empire. And um, I kind of had a similar question that if, you know, may, let's, let's just use America as an example. Let's say um, the country, the area that America occupies tomorrow becomes, you know, an anarchistic society, um, what would prevent us from um, aggressive uh, actions from, uh, from places like China and, and Russia who may, uh, who may see it in their best interest to attack us and seize our land? Well, um, let's pretend that you're selling protection from that mm-hmm. to a bunch of people. What would you offer them? Um, like, like money-wise? No. Or, or protection from, from like, uh, an aggressive country? Yes. Um, I would offer them, um, well, first I, I would offer them my services as a, uh, a defense agency, um, you know, uh, soldiers, weapons. Um, I would offer them their own weapons, probably, um, you know, maybe some sort of uh, shelter or a warning system as well. You know, if we were to get attacked, and you know, probably just you know stuff along those lines. Yeah, you you would offer them some methodology for dealing with that uh, dispute, right? Mm-hmm. And um, you would 
make it not worth the foreign leader's while to invade your landmass? And how would you do that? Um, get a lot of people under my def defense plan and uh, build up a large, you know, uh, or at least a, a formidable uh, presence or a group of, you know, uh, you know, mercenaries or soldiers or whatever. And oh, you're such a statist. I'm not a statist. <laughs> no, no, I don't mean that. I don't mean that. What I mean is that, um, what I mean is that you're you're thinking of war in a statist paradigm, giant armies, right? Yeah. Tell me, Iraq had about 0.3 percent of the military budget of the United States, and who won? Um. Well, we definitely didn't win. <laughs> well, first of all, there's no you because there's no we for you there. But, but um, America did not uh, win that particular yeah. conflict because um, it's a guerrilla insurgency with a foreign culture. Mm -hmm. um, was which army was bigger, the Soviet Empire's army or the Afghani's Mujahideen army in the 1980s? Well, the Soviets, of course. Right. And you can take down a $20, sorry, $20 million MiG with a $15,000 Stinger missile. Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to fighting against a, um, an invader, well, Afghanistan has been invaded approximately 12 billion times throughout the course of its existence. Nobody ever stays. I'm not saying that you would get invaded or anything like that because yeah. that's, you know, but, but what I'm saying is that you're thinking, well, the best way to fight a giant army is with a giant army. I don't think that's true. I, I'm no military expert, so this is just, I'm barely an expert on anything, but, but these are my sort of uh, Least needed caveat ever, Steph. I'm not a military expert. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I say, well, no, that's not, I did, you know, I wrote a book on war. Anyway, but, um, so, these are just some thoughts off the top of my head. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, you uh, would... Um, do, I would do research into DNA-specific illnesses. Oh, interesting. Right, so, so some sort of virus that would attack only a particular DNA, right? Mm -hmm. If I could only get it down to a bloodline, that'd be fine with me. <laughs> and, and you would then simply release that in the area where the, um, the leader of the hostile army was, right? And yeah, hopefully... Yeah you know, turn him into some sort of liquid that fills his shoes. That would be, that would be lovely, right? Because, you know, that's self-defense, right? Yeah. So that kind of decapitation is really important and it has been less used throughout history, partly for reasons of geography and partly because there's just this kind of unwritten rule that we don't take out your leaders, you don't take out ours. It's a lot more fun to push imaginary people around on a map than it is to, you know, actually get hit yourselves, right? Oh, yeah. Um, and um, so that, that's sort of one, one particular option, a very specific bioweapon that would be focused on the leaders. The other thing is to take out a giant bounty, right, on, you know, I'm going to pay $10 million to whoever kills this guy. Oh. That's kind of self-defense, right? Yeah, yeah. And again, these are just things I don't know what the, the final answer would be. The other thing, too, it's really tough to invade an anarchic country. Mm-hmm. Because there's no tax base to take over, right? The reason that you invade another country is to take over its tax base. When the Nazis took over 
northern France in May of 1940, they just started taking all the taxes from the French people. And that's what they used to continue to fund their war. And so, and they seized all the government gold and you know, all that kind of crap, right? Yeah. So there's no centralized power structure that is going to take over, that you can take over, that's going to provide you a lot of goodies if you're trying to look at an anarchic society. And I go over this more in Practical Anarchy, um, which is, again, freedomainradio.com slash free, uh, bo- free book. But um, it's really tough to, uh, to do that. The technology in a free society would be very powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, the wealth would be staggering, right? A free society would easily be growing 5 to 10% economic growth a year without the accompanying environmental destruction that comes from hysterical debt-based growth. And so they would have the very best military equipment that could be conceived of, the very best and most specific and targeted weapons that could be conceived of. They would have a near infinite supply of, of wealth relative to, um, uh, relative to the, uh, the opposing uh, army. And basically it would be like watching the post office compete with Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> yeah. yeah. By definitely. public competing with private, you got a private army. I mean, in, in a weird kind of way, the Iraq insurgents were a kind of private army, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. And they weren't a state agency, and they won. And, and they, they won with, with almost no money, and they run with vastly inferior weapons, and they won with no centralized organization and no generals and no uniforms. And like they won by not playing by the rules of, you know, let's get two people out on a battlefield and blow tank juice at each other until one of us breaks into pieces. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess another question I have kind of related to this talk is, um, Using the same uh, kind of argument that we would use against, you know, uh, the the company not providing a road to, towards the homes of elderly people, um, do you think we could do? Do you think um, a potential solution to the problems in our country with law enforcement could be achieved by privatizing it? Sorry, which problems with law enforcement? Um, well, you know, just just uh, you know the stuff you see on on the internet, you know, uh, maybe more almost not perceived and real problems, you know, with uh, these arrests, the, like the uh, the Sandra Bland thing, for instance, you know, um, this this kind of uh, unnecessary arrests and um, general bad press that the police gets. Well, I don't know about general bad press that the police get. The police seem to get a lot of good press insofar as most of the people in trouble call the police. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that, again, could be because of a monopoly. I mean, there's lots of problems with um, the uh, the way the police is set up at the moment. But the biggest, I think, challenge is that everyone has their moral bugaboos, right? Mm-hmm. Like the guy at the beginning, the, the first caller, all due respect, he was like, well, how do we force people of different cultures to get together. It's like, yeah, so yeah. that's your moral bugaboo, right? And other people are like, you know, my, my brother died of a heroin overdose. Heroin is like the worst thing ever. We've got to ban it, right? And other people, you know, mothers against drunk driving and so on. And 
of course, I'm very much against drunk driving too. And I think that there would definitely be significant sanctions for it because that is putting other people physically at risk. But, you know, the, the, the women who wanted to ban alcohol because their husbands were drunks and they'd made, they'd brought, they married the wrong guy. They married a drunk. So we got to ban alcohol, right? I mean, and everyone's got these, these bugaboos, like things that they just desperately want changed in society, you know, like, uh, I got a bad haircut, man. I paid for that bad haircut. It sucks. And so we got to license these people. You know, I, 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 had, I had some food and I got sick from some restaurant. And we, we just, we got to have health inspectors. And, and it's got to be, in, and it's got to be paid for by other people, right? Mm-hmm. Because w- what puts the cap on this constant and ever-present and ever-escalating moral witch hunts. You know, where like a third of Americans now need a license to have a goddamn job. Yeah. You know, they got little fucking kids on the front lawn trying to sell lemonade, and you got cops coming up demanding their permits. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because unregulated lemonade, that would be anarchy. I mean, there could be pits in there, and... uh, (laughs) Maybe some bits of rind and heroin, <laughs> right? I mean, so what, what is it that stops? What's the balance? Of course, we want an organized society, but everyone, I don't know if, if you know people, they just have these weird fetishes. I hate drummers. Just kidding. <laughs> but, but everybody has these, these weird fetishes. Like, this stuff really bugs me, and it's based upon their personal history and so on, right? Like Donald yeah. Trump's brother died of alcoholism, right? I mean, that's going to have an effect. Dr. Phil's father was an alcoholic. That's why apparently he doesn't touch alcohol. And people have these, these – and there's nothing wrong with them, and I completely understand why people have them. But what is it that keeps these from escalating into these endless moral witch hunts? Well, it's the price mechanism. What is the price of indulging in your moral witch hunt? Well, if you have to pay the bills or if you have to convince other people to pay for them voluntarily, okay, you don't have to convince me that people who drive drunk should have sanctions. I don't think you'd need to convince a lot of people except a few people who like to drive drunk, right? A lot of people would say, and so I'm willing to pay for that. It's worth worth it for me, right? Now, this guy's moral bugaboo was like people not mingling outside their own culture. I don't care. So he, that's why I said to him, you know, make the case, bring the data, try to convince people. And my moral bugaboo is treat children really, really well. <laughs> you don't negotiate with them and reason with them and all that. And I'm not going to force people to do that for moral reasons. But people don't have those moral reasons because they don't understand what morality is. They just conform. And so people are like, my my brother died of heroin. It's now my crusade to to get heroin banned from society because it's worse stuff. And they they dive into the data and they find all these horrible stories about heroin and they never read Kublai Khan. And they they just (laughs) – this poem that was written by Coleridge under, I think, opium or whatever, right? They they just – they immerse themselves in all this negative stuff and it becomes this echo chamber of ever-increasing moral hysteria and they've got to get it done. It becomes their life's work. It becomes their obsession. Again, fine, you know, but don't force me to pay for your bugaboo. Don't force me to pay. Most people are like, yeah, murder, I'm, I'm okay with that being, being sanctioned. I think that's great. Murder, rape, yes, absolutely. Let's get rid of that. Uh, 
and uh, theft, yeah, kind of the society with assault, yes, absolutely. But after you get past the basics, no weed. Well, yeah, I get some people, they have a really bad experience, and then their dog dies from eating a hash brownie and, you know, and then whatever, right? And then they want they want it gone, right? Oh, but there's some skeevy drug dealers, which is probably the result of the war on drugs. But, you know, something bad happens and they get this bugaboo. And I've known, you probably know people with their bugaboos. I know people with their bugaboos. You have them, I have them, everyone has them. Certainly. But the government turns these bugaboos, these personal obsessions into national policy. And then creates this whole bureaucracy, which depends on it and creates a whole media, which has to feed it. Mm-hmm. And it's really tough. It's really tough uh, to to raise personal bugaboos to the level of geographic policy without a cost-benefit evaluation. Look, there's a moral reasons, of course, why people don't want theft and they'll pay, but there's also a cost-benefit that's pretty easy to make. If no one's going to protect anyone or anything to do with property rights, it's a subsidy for thieves and thieves will multiply. I mean, in a free society, everyone's brought up, well, who knows, right? But, but the way it sort of sits right now. And it's the old thing, like, if, if children are never allowed to fail, they're not going to try. Mm-hmm. And so negative consequences and positive consequences are kind of how we navigate through a lot of things in life. Because very few of us sit there and say, really want to kill that guy who's snoring on the train, but there's these laws, so fine, <laughs> I won't. I, or there's three American military guys, and I'm on a train in France. <laughs> so funny, eh? Once again, the Americans say France. <laughs> anyway, um, but uh, most of the decisions we have to make are these sort of little tweaks around ethical issues or, or ethical questions and positive and negative consequences of the way that we navigate these things a lot of ways. And so you need to make a cost-benefit analysis of some of these things. So the, the proliferation of laws in a free society, I mean, can anyone conceivably imagine that even if there was such a thing as taxes in a free society that you'd end up with this multi-hundred-thousand-page code that no human being can possibly comprehend called the IRS tax code, right? Yeah, exactly. It would never, ever happen. It would never happen in a million years. So the, the purpose of, of freedom and, and entrepreneurship is to simplify, to make things as easy and as cheap and convenient as humanly possible, which means that there'll be a the few, few basic moral rules, non-aggression principle, respect for property, people are going to agree on that. They're going to try and get those enforced as efficiently as human, humanly possible. People's bugaboos, that well, they can go and write blogs and they can make the case and they can write movies and they can do whatever they want to try and influence people's decisions but they're going to be fighting the uphill battle that it's not cost-effective for people to indulge their bugaboos. And this subsidized, this bugaboo subsidization is why we've become such a nanny state. Because people, yeah, they have legitimate concerns and their voices should be added to the chorus of attention-seeking and moral improvement in human society. But when they can latch onto the state... They don't face the same cost-benefit justification. They don't face people's indifference. You know, you cure bugaboos with other people being indifferent. Can I get Mike to listen to a Queen song? Well, with enough duct tape, no. Hey, he I actually through. like remarkably, a few Queen songs. Remarkably strong teeth. Yeah, it's not enough to like the late stuff, man. <laughs> don't give me I want it all. Don't, don't even think about it. That's my favorite. Anyway, 
Sorry? That's my favorite Queen song. I know it's your favorite. You told me. It still burns. Night at the opera, day at the races. Anyway, but um, so people's indifference is essential to keeping society very effective and very efficient. People are incredibly indifferent to what you're passionate about. And that's fine. That's exactly how it should be. Should everyone be as passionate about philosophy as I am? No. I like to eat. So people got to grow shit. <laughs> so no, absolutely not, right? And um, philosophy isn't getting any oil out of the ground to get food to my hand. Anyway, so, so it's, it's my job to try and get people engaged and interested in this because it's my bugaboo. Philosophy, ethics, virtue, reason, consistency, evidence, all that kind of good stuff. It's my job to make that engaging for people. The fact that people are hugely indifferent to it is fantastic. That's exactly how it should be in the world. And so indifference is how we keep things efficient in society. But when you can hook into the power of the state, people's indifference doesn't matter anymore. I mean, your sister got some weird disease. It's very expensive to treat, so you want to get it. And you'll get some, some charity and all that. Maybe she's loved and you're loved. You've helped out the community. They help you out back or whatever. But maybe you get this thing where it's like, the government should, should cover the cost of this disease for everyone. And that's your bugaboo, and I completely understand it. But other people are kind of indifferent. And they, you know, care about it a little bit and whatever, right? If they care about your sister, they'll be caring about it, right? But if you can get the government to pass a law that says this needs to be included in everyone's insurance, which is one of the reasons why, along with illegal immigration and six million other things, healthcare in America is so expensive, that everyone gets their bugaboo jammed down everyone else's throats, through mandated in, into their healthcare insurance. This is why you've got 70-year-old women paying for fertility treatments that they're never going to use. So, unless they want to give birth to a 40-year-old or something, right? So, <laughs> people's indifference is really fundamental. People's indifference, that's how you know something is real quality. When enough people really care about it and get enthusiastic about it, it means someone has magically overcome the giant inertia called indifference. That's why it's so few people make money in the arts or, or, or through YouTube or online as a whole or, or in writing because the vast majority of people don't give a shit about the novel you wrote and they don't give a shit about the YouTube video that you made and they don't give a shit about the fact that you've learned how to play crazy little thing called love on the guitar. <laughs> so when people go apeshit over Taylor Swift, she's bringing something really cool to the mix. Mm-hmm. And so you need this massive wave of indifference so you know what's got some value and what doesn't. Yes, Taylor Swift has value. Sorry, she is a great songwriter. And quite a pretty little cupid doll of infinite stretchiness. <laughs> I mean, I swear to God, seeing a picture of her next to Lena Dunham, it's like the Eloy and the Morlock. Anyway, so, so you, but, but the government blows away this indifference by forcing everyone to have to pay attention. And... Um, I think that's how this massive tidal wave of indifference, and this doesn't mean non-caringness. The fact that I don't care about your bugaboo doesn't mean I don't care about you as a human being. I don't, I just, I got my own bugaboos and sometimes they eclipse yours. My sister didn't die of that weird disease and I sympathize, but it's not as visceral for me. And so it, it, we, ha we have to have a high barrier for getting people involved in stuff in society. And unfortunately, the government doesn't do that. It just forces people to pay attention. It forces people to do stuff. It blows past the inertia of indifference, which is supposed to conserve society's precious time, energy, and resources. Just don't care that much. 
you know, if some animal is supposed to be, is going to become extinct, yeah, some people will care about it and they'll really care about it. Lots of people care about it a little bit. A lot of people aren't care about it that much, right? Now, whether the animal should go extinct or not, I don't know, 98% of animals throughout human history have gone extinct, including right-wing people in academia. But the, I don't know what the answer is. Uh, I'm willing to listen to people's cases, but everybody's got, there are 8 billion, 6 billion people in the world and about 60 billion bugaboos. Hmm. We can't act on them all. Yeah. But everybody would love the government to enforce theirs. And this is one of the reasons why things get so crazy. Wow. <laughs> that was a lot to take in. <laughs> um, now, uh, as far as I've, I've kind of been toying with this question, um, as far as. Okay, it's the last, last one. Last one. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, Make yeah. it good. Make it be your best question. <laughs> Um, as, as far as, um, applying these concepts to my life, um, would it be morally right for me as, as a person to, to not necessarily, um, constantly speak out on, on on, like a public forum, but almost do the opposite. What if I took my family and, and moved to Montana and raised, you know, raised children there in a, you know, in a peaceful and, um, and uh, to use your word, a virtuous way, would, would, would it be morally okay to do that? Or do I have a moral obligation to, you know, I guess the rest of humanity to try and, um, to try and reason with them or, you know, make them see? No. No? No. You want, if you move to Montana and raise your kids peacefully, mm-hmm. are you initiating the use of force or fraud against anyone? No. Are you stealing anyone? No. Anyone's stuff? Mm-mm. You raping anyone? You assaulting anyone? No. No, then you're in the clear. Wow. <laughs> I can, you cannot have a positive moral obligation. In other words, okay. something that you did not enter into voluntarily. You can have negative ones. Mm-hmm. Don't steal, don't kill, right? And if you sign a contract, you rent a car or whatever, you've got a positive moral obligation to maintain it and return it. But no, you, you have no positive moral obligation to make the world a better place because you are not initiating the use of violence by avoiding that. Wow, that makes me feel a lot better now. <laughs> I, I really like that. I really like that. Um, thank you I so wish much. you would. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I'd like it if you did. Oh, yes, yes. You know, uh, like, I mean, if, if my daughter's drowning and I'm not around and you can swim, I'd like you to save her. Of Can't course. throw you in jail if you don't. Of course. But uh, so you, it's, not, it's not a moral question. It is a love question. Because if you move into Montana, you're saying you've given up and you cannot find a way to make the world a better place and be happy. It means you've gone rage quit earth, right? You, you, you've, you've say, fuck, fuck the planet. I'm gone. Now, of course your kids got to live somewhere. So if you haven't kids, you might want to work to make the place (laughs) a little bit better. Uh, you know, like if there's some beam that's creaking and cracking over your baby's crib, you might want to Get that fixed <laughs> Well, the whole thing collapses on your baby, right? Yeah. So if you, especially if you have kids or just if there's love, can, can your love of what the world could be, can your love of what the world could be overcome your hatred of the way it is? Right? The love and the hate, the battle, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> can, can, can your love be so intense that it transfers the paradise of your vision to other people because it really can only be trying can 
shore it up with reason, with evidence. But again, fundamentally, it is it, it is the passion and the yearning and the vividness of the world that you picture that is the conduit by which it transfers to other people. It is your love of the world that does not exist in any other place than the future and your present imagination. It is your love of that world that transfers it to other people and has them see a vision. And if enough people decide to go in a direction, they pull the whole world with them. It doesn't even have to be that many people. The vast majority of wealth is created by very few people. The vast majority of art is created by very few people. The vast majority of philosophy is created by the fewest people in the world. The vast majority of social change is created by very few people. There's an old saying that says, never doubt that a small and committed band of individuals can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that has ever done so. And if you can love the future enough to inspire people with the same flame of love, to see the same future, that future manifests. If you are passionate enough and creative enough in your movie script, it goes from words on a page to Jennifer Lawrence shooting people with arrows. And it goes in vividly creating the RK Gene Wars continuum in the movie Twilight. (laughs) Right? So you can go from words on the page to people in the world. The force of imagination. Shakespeare has been dead for hundreds of years. The force of Shakespeare's imagination still gets (laughs) Benedict Cumberbatch up treading the boards every night as Hamlet. And he's been translated into every known language, including some that are basically whistles and clicks. And the force of Shakespeare's imagination has launched untold numbers of plays and actors and careers and all of that. And the guy who first, Canadian, who first dreamt up basketball is responsible for an unbelievably distracting series of shoe squeaks that drive you insane if you're watching the game and can't tune it out. (laughs) And the guy who invented hockey has enriched enormous numbers of dentists throughout the world. So, you know, there's that, if you build it, he will come. Uh, If you build it, they will come. It's actually, if you build it, he will come. If I build it, he will come. That, that was a terrible movie. I never even made it to the end. It was just way too insane. Like, you, if you want to do insane, you know, give me a German nightclub in 1928. Don't give me a fucking Midwestern <laughs> farmer's field. I mean, that, that, that's just tragic, right? Yeah. yeah. But um, there is the truth in that, that the future is the shadow and the light cast by imagination in the present. And if you can imagine the world that you want to live in with such vividity that it passes like electricity through your love of that vision from person to person, that is what the future will become. If you go to Montana, you're off the grid. You are no longer, you no longer have your finger on the scale of human justice. You no longer have your shadow guiding people towards the future. You no longer have the love current that pulls people to a better world. 
the natural state of humanity is decay. Like the natural state of evolution is dysgenics because the number of negative mutations vastly outweigh the number of positive or beneficial mutations in an organism. And the number of negative influences in society vastly outweigh the number of positive influences. Because most people use ideas only to serve their own immediate ego and greed and to dominate in a world where everything is win-lose because we don't have philosophy. We have states and armies and gods and heaven and hell. And here's a piece of cake or I'm going to hit you. And so the number of negative influences vastly outweighs the number of positive influences is why societies tend towards entropy, tend towards decay, tend towards collapse. And there are a heroic few who see that and through sheer force of ferocity and will and commitment seek to reverse the inevitable decays within society. And I talk about status societies, superstitious societies. I think a free society would be much more sustainable, although a free society will breed laziness. I don't know what the outcome of that is going to be. I'd love to try. <laughs> I'd love to see how it goes. I'm committed to seeing how it goes. But I see the future down to the last piece of dust floating in the air of the most northern hemisphere airplane hangar that can be imagined. I see the future detailed. When I was uh, going through therapy, I had a dream. I was flying over a city. One of the few incredibly mind-blowingly realistic and vivid dreams. And I was uh, flying over the city. I could see every hair on the head of every person. I could see... Uh, every sparkle on every piece of turned quartz dust in the road. I could see every pixel on every billboard. Uh, you know how when you zoom in, it's because all pointillism like papers used to be. And I could see every letter on everyone's screen through the window. I could see everything. And the future to me is that clear. What we're trying to build, what we're trying to get to, how happy and joyous the world could be um, in a way that can't can be conceived of. That can't really be conceived of. I can imagine it. I feel the electricity of where it could be. I can't live there. And I can't imagine what it would be like to live there. Somebody born in a wheelchair, they can see people run. They can maybe imagine it, but they haven't had the visceral experience. So it remains in exercise in imagination. And all cures are born out of a love of hate, a love of health and a hatred of disease. All cures are born out of a love of health and a hatred of disease. The love of health is not enough. You really have to hate the disease as well. And the curse of violence, particularly against children, I love the cure. I'm living the cure. I hate the disease. I hate the immorality. I hate the big ass bullies picking on helpless and dependent children. Wow. And through that passion, we can build a better world. If you all take off to Montana, nobody's going to piss on your grave as a bad person. No one's going to visit your grave. It'll be like you were never here. And there aren't enough of us doing this work that I don't care about that. Wow. Thank you so much, Stefan. <laughs> you are very welcome. Thank you so much for calling in. And thank you, everyone, so much for making this conversation possible. It is an honor and a privilege and a startlingly, surprisingly joyous interaction every time we get together. Freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out this most essential conversation in the world, I believe. And uh, thank you, everyone, so much. Thanks, Mike. Um, and uh, thanks, of course, always to Stoyan. And uh, we will talk to you on the weekend. Bye.